Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are joined by Rabbi Matt Schneeweiss. Rabbi Schneeweiss began his Jewish education in the 11th grade, the same year he converted to Judaism at Northwest Yeshiva High School in Seattle, Washington. After graduation, he learned at Yeshiva B'nai Torah for seven years while earning a BA in psychology from Turo and an MA in Jewish education from Azrieli. He then embarked on his high school teaching career, teaching at Hafter High School and Rambam Masifta before moving on to Midrashet Shalhevet, where he taught a variety of Limudei Kodesh and English classes for 10 years. In 2020, he returned to YBT, where he currently serves as the Director of Student Learning. His many shirim at YBT are characterized by curiosity-driven learning, transformative insights, and real-world application. Rabbi Schneeweiss is the author of the blog Kol Haseridim, featuring hundreds of articles on Torah and Jewish philosophy, and the Stoic Jew podcast. Nearly all of his shirim are available on YouTube and on his four other podcasts. Without further ado, Rabbi Schneeweiss. Welcome to the Judaism Demystified podcast. Rabbi Schneeweiss, it's a pleasure to have you back. Pleasure to be back. And we have Bensi this time with us. <laughs> yeah. Glad to be here. <laughs> okay, I'm glad to have you here too. So we wanted to discuss the topic of can God do the impossible? And we figured there's probably only a handful of people we can actually have this conversation with. And you're, you're probably atop the list. Oh, so, no. So And then, <laughs> then we saw that you actually had a at a shiur on it so we figured this would be a great opportunity and for those who are listening on the on audio i highly suggest switching to the youtube version so you can actually watch his slideshow presentation yeah i'll try to remember to narrate any i don't use a lot of graphics but i i have a lot i have all the sources on the on the on the, uh, on the screen i'll try to remember to narrate the the graphical portions yeah problem okay Alrighty. here it goes Should we take it away okay so yep. let me share the screen and then make this full PowerPoint. Okay. All right, so the title this year, uh, I use the title that you gave me, which is Can God Do the Impossible? Uh, the, we'll see that there are subtly different ways to ask this question and they, they matter, okay? And the subtitle is Five Answers from Five Rishonim. And really it's four Rishonim and one Gaon, but it sounds better to say five answers from five Rishonim, okay? So because I, Last time I was on this podcast, then uh, I hadn't listened to a lot of episodes, but now I see that you guys have all these prestigious people. So I have, I feel like I have to start by emphasizing my lack of credentials. Okay, so we've got two <laughs> columns here. Um, I am, so this first column is I am not. I am not a professional philosopher. Okay, I know you have distinguished philosophers who are in philosophy. I'm not a philosopher. I'm not an academic scholar. Okay, not in academia. I don't have a PhD or any other letters. I'm not a well-read theologian either. Okay, I, I'm very, I'm very not well-read. Okay, I'm not going to be quoting from all these like, uh, you know, sources. Um, I'm not an expert on Jewish thought. I'm definitely not well-versed in Kabbalah, mysticism, or Hasidus. So I, I, I apologize for not representing that. Um, I'm not a spokesman for all Jews or any views other than my own. Okay, this as as uh, as Ben mentioned, this started off as a Q&A answer, and and I was just asked the question, so I said what I thought. That's what I'm going to do here, just in a, a more extended form. And I'm also, I said this in the first episode, I'm a non, 
I okay. Oh, wait, oh, <laughs> I got myself confused. I am not. No, I'm supposed to say I am not my monodian. No, I'm not a non my monodian, nor am I an anti my monodian. But then I realized as I was typing that that that's like getting negative theology about like my my status. <laughs> but what I want to say is like I'm not a diehard Rambam guy, but I love the Rambam. So um so you know if anyone's gonna say well the Rambam doesn't hold this according to Chacham Faor or according to like this school or that's I'm I'm not I'm not one. You you you're you're a Hashemian. That's the most important. Yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah. So I'll tell you what I am though. Okay, I am my background. I talked about this in the first episode. I'm a gear who did and hopefully still does his best to build his personal hashkafa on a foundation of Rishonim and like-minded Acharonim. You know some people like the you know modern day thinkers. Some people like Hasidus. I find myself drawn to the works of the Rishonim, and that's kind of where I built my Hashkafa from. I also attempt to ground my Hashkafa in the study of texts, not based on hearsay, which I feel like is how a lot of people get their Hashkafa, just from hearing ideas and never actually like looking at them inside. So we're going to focus a lot on first-hand sources. Yeah. Excellent point. No, I'm saying on the, the someone who attempts to ground their stuff on percent study of text is so important. Right. People don't realize that. That's so much what yeah, we get. Yeah, so many times. I mean, I've, I've quoted things before where... I think I'm quoting, but I really only heard it. And then when I look it up, it's completely different or there's a completely different context. So that's why I think it's important. Uh, I am a once and hopefully uh, a, a high school teacher. So I have uh, that's my main area of expertise. The last three um, years I've been teaching in Yeshiva B'nai Torah, uh, not high school, but, and then I'm also someone who's done a lot of Q&A sessions. Okay, so this is not my first rodeo here. Okay, that's my lack of credentials and, and what, I, what I am here, okay? So the classical form of the question is, can God create a rock he can't lift, right? That's, I think, how many of us first hear it. Now, would one of you like to just spell out, like, the the catch-22 or the gotcha or, like, what makes this a juicy question? Yeah, well, the fact that, you know, if God, crea if God creates a rock that he can't lift, then he's not great. Okay, right. Okay, fine. So then say that he can't create a rock that he can't lift. So then he's limited. Oh, okay, right. So, so the, the way I, I tried to uh, phrase it as symmetrically as possible. So the dilemma is if you say, yes, he can create a rock he can't lift, then you're saying that he's limited because now he can't lift this rock. Mm. And if you answer that, no, he can't create a rock he can't lift. So then you are also saying that God is limited because you're saying he can't create something. Either way you look at it, you're limited. Exactly. Okay, right. So again, I've, I've discussed this with many high schoolers, ninth grade through 12th grade, and the typical reactions I get are represented by these emojis here. Uh, uh, anxiety, tears, guilt, confusion, anger, depression, <laughs> mind being blown. A lot of people also just pretend the question doesn't exist. And then you also get people who they actually, it leads to thinking, okay? And this is where I have a brief story time. So when I, uh, I was, uh, I converted to Judaism like a month before my 17th um, birthday. So I had met with Avad uh, earlier and like got a mentor and started learning through the whole process. And then in, I think in November of 2000, when I was in 11th grade, that's when I met my Rebbe, Rebbe Moskowitz Zatzal for the first time. And he was the one who introduced me to thinking, okay? And so it must've been the week that I went to the VOD for the second meeting that I first heard this question from Rabbi Moskowitz, can God create a rock he can't lift? And Again, I had never been exposed to philosophy before. I'd never been exposed to thinking. So I'm like, I, my mind is blown by this. And I'm thinking about it. So I, I get to the, I, I get called into the VOD and there's like, you know, I think there were like 10 of the rabbis of the city there. I think one of them was Rabbi Levy at the time who you recently interviewed. Um, and, uh, and after, you know, so they said that they approved me for conversion and we set a date. And then they said, are there any other questions you have about Judaism? <laughs> so I said, 
you know, I just heard this great question. Can God create a rock you can't lift? So the rabbis like all looked at each other. And then one of them said, worry about that later on, <laughs> you know, which was probably a wise move at the time, given how like fresh I was to this, uh, this area. So that's like, th this question always has a special place in my heart for that reason. Okay. So, um, what I'd like to do for the structure of this, before we answer this question is we're going to go through, like I mentioned, five different, uh, Rishonim slash Gaon, uh, the Rambam, the Me'iri, the Sadi Gaon, the Sefer Karim, or the Albo and the Ramban. And what I would like to do is, you know, there's a lot of overlap. But the reason why I picked these five is because each of them brings a new angle to the question. So I don't want to summarize their, I'm going to try to summarize their points, but on this recurring screen that's going to come up between each of these sources, I'm going to summarize what I would like to be the takeaway, okay? Which is not necessarily going to align with what they said, what, with their goals and what they said. I'm saying what we're going to take away from it. But you'll notice that number one slot is not filled yet because the number one thing we're going to do before we get to any of the sources is answer it based on logic, okay? Mm. Now- yeah. I, I, I don't know, I don't know all of your demographic and your listeners, but I have encountered people before who say, you know, chas shalom that you should try to answer the question of such a weighty import based on your own mind. Like you have to use the sources. So there's this great anecdote that I heard from my Rebbeim in Yeshiva. Um, I tracked down a, a source, I think it's told by many people, but this was told by Rabbi uh, Norman Lamb in his eulogy for the Rav on April 25th, 1993. Uh, and I'm just gonna read the end of the anecdote. Um, once after a particularly original shiur, a stranger who was not used to such unusual independent creativity asked the Rav, but Rabbi Soloveitchik, what is your source? He answered, a clear and logical mind. Okay, so a clear and logical mind can be a source. And if if the Rav or Rabbi Lamb is not enough of a source for you, let's go back a few centuries to the Sefer Achina. Okay, in his Hakdama, um, he writes, uh, he's talking about Olam Haba, and he addresses the question, why doesn't the Torah mention Olam Haba? Uh, the world to come because so according to him the reason why is because you can prove olam haba based on logic okay now we're not going to get into that but that's his position so after stating that yeah benzi doesn't the rambam say the same thing in the uh possibly possibly that that's why it's not any car since it's a logical deduction that's why it's not well, one of the ikarim well I mean, depends on whether you say it is. I mean, he, the Ram does hold that uh, Sakhar Onish is one of the Ikarim, and he says that the the ultimate Sakhar is Olam Haba, and the ultimate Onish is Karis. So depends on wh what you say the relation is with that. But yeah, sure. it possibly says that. I just remember that in the, in the letter. Okay, yeah, it's, it's definitely possible. I haven't revisited that in a while. Okay, cool. Okay. Right, no, so, don't need to so, okay. the, uh, so the Sefer Chiyah holds that you could prove it by logic, and he... He says, these matters don't need to be reinforced by proofs and testimonies from scripture. They are their own witnesses and proofs and are in the category of first principles. Okay, meaning that you need nothing other than the mind in order to arrive at them. For this reason, the Torah doesn't go on at length about anything that could be known by human logic. As Chazal say in many places, uh, why do I need a proof? It's a logical argument. This means to say it is not necessary to cite scripture to support that which is dictated by logic. So that's why the first answers that we're going to give are based on logic. Okay, so can God create a rock that he can't lift? Um, I think maybe in the interest of time, usually at this point, I would ask my students what they think. I mean, if you want, if any of you wants to give a, uh, uh, an answer, then you can. If not, I'll, I'll, I'll just present my several answers here and then we can discuss them. If I had to choose one limitation, being yeah. that there's no answer that you can get away from limitation, I'd say no, he can't. Okay, so... I, I happen to agree with you, but I think that you're, the key point that you uh, you mentioned is that doesn't get away with the fact that he's lim limited. So there's a hidden premise here, and the hidden premise is that limited equals bad, okay? 
right? And that's how it functions as a catch-22 is if you say yes or no, you're saying God is limited and that's bad, okay? So I want to examine that premise, okay? My first answer is as follows. So the premise of the question, anyone who asks this question is, is, is you know, saying that Hashem is perfect without any flaws, defects, or weaknesses. I understand that that could be the subject of its own analysis. And if you are interested, uh, I believe in the Sefer HaIkarim, then I think in the maybe in the fourth section, the fourth book, then he has a, a couple of chapters on that. But let's, that's definitely the premise of the question here. Okay, so perfection by definition implies limitations. How so? Because to be perfect is to be limited to being the best or to, to not being able to have any flaws. For mm. example, a perfect diamond cannot have any blemishes. A perfect machine cannot malfunction. A perfect violin cannot be out of tune. A perfect chess player cannot lose a game. Someone who has perfect health cannot get sick. So here's the answer. The answer is, it is impossible to for Hashem to do that which would render him imperfect or stem from an imperfection. Okay, let me say that again. It is impossible for Hashem to do that which would render him imperfect or stem from an imperfection. Is this a limitation? Yes, but limitations are not problematic unless they are flaws, and this type of limitation isn't a flaw. Okay, so the, the, again, this is, it's just this, 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 this uh, premise that we walk in with that if you say someone can't do something, then that's automatically bad, but it's not. Any, the more perfect you are, the fewer things you will be able to do, if you think about it, right? Someone who is learning a, a basket, you know, learning basketball, right, will end up making a wide variety of mistakes, but the better you are, the more limited your activity will be, and you will not be able to make those mistakes, okay? So that's answer number one, which is no, he can't create a rock he can't lift. Why? Because he is perfect. Okay. Brilliant. Okay. So yeah. So basically, so basically, what we did was instead of saying we're limiting him to not being able to to pick to create a rock he can't pick up, we are just now changing what that means, and it really means we're he's perfect. Therefore, exactly. Yes. Exactly. He's perfect. Yeah. Therefore, he yeah. can't make a rock. He right. Can. He is limited, but the limitation is not an imperfection. Gotcha. Okay. Answer number two, based on logic, uh, is. Uh, let's set aside this question and ask another similar, uh, uh, but also classical question. Okay, what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object? What do you say? Um, nothing. Nothing. Well, so what does that mean practically? What happens to the the force or the object? Yeah, uh, um, that's a good question. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Um, so again, you have another catch twenty two, which is that if the unstoppable force uh, is stopped by the immovable object, so now it's not an unstoppable force. Unstoppable, and if it's yeah. moved, it's not immovable. So that's the key to the answer, really, right? Which is, it's a trick question, okay? Mm -hmm. And the the way to to spell it out is, if an unstoppable force exists, then by definition, an immovable object cannot also exist. And vice versa, if an immovable object exists, then by definition, an unstoppable force cannot also exist. Okay, so so to here, if your premise is that God is omnipotent, okay, all powerful, there cannot exist anything over which he has no power. And if something exists over which he has no power, then he's not omnipotent, which means that the question is irrational because it's built on a paradox. Okay. So that's my answer number two. Can God create a rock he can't lift? The, so the answer, answer one was no, he can't because he's perfect. Answer two is the question itself is absurd because it's predicated on a paradox. And you can't ask a paradoxical question. It, the question doesn't have any legs to stand on. Uh-huh. All right. So, so 
Okay, what I'm trying to figure out right now is, mm -hmm. so therefore, are we still saying no, he can't? or was No, we're refusing to answer the question. So now, so now, so, um, okay, so let me rephrase what I meant. Yeah. Does this, does the question predicated on paradox now um, remove the option of, therefore, is it better to say this or can you still say, no, he can't because he's perfect? Or is that the you same thing? You can't answer the question at all because the question, the question never gets off the ground, right? It'd be like if I said, um, what's better, a book? If I don't finish, if I don't finish the question, like, you know, <laughs> like the, it's not a question. It doesn't have the form of a question, right? You know, so, so, so this is even worse though, because, because the, 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 the question is, is presupposing something that cannot be, okay? Now, if you're wondering what the difference is between the first and second answers, I'm going to actually address later on the strategic advantage and disadvantage of each of the answers. Okay, that's what I was... Okay, okay good. All right. Okay. Let's go answer number three. Now, this answer is based on the current title of this episode, which is, Can God Do the Impossible? And I'm going to call that the raw form of the question. We have the local form of the question, which is, Can God Create a Rock He Can't Lift? Or you could call it the, the, the theistic version of the question. Then you have the atheistic version of the question, which is an unstoppable force and an immovable object. Then you have the 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 raw form of the, the, what you're really getting at when you ask, can God create a rock he can't live, just can God do the impossible, okay? So here's a, a third answer, which is no. Why? Because if he could, then it wouldn't be impossible. Or in other words, <laughs> the impossible by definition cannot be done. Once again, the question is a non-starter. Now I'm gonna depict something on, on the PowerPoint, which I'll, I'll verbalize here, okay? I, I'm a very visual person, okay? So the way I visual, visualize this question is imagine everything in the universe and anything that could be thought of being put into two boxes. One box has a label that says possible things. The other box has a label that says impossible things. Okay. So there's lots of stuff in the possible things box, right? Okay. I don't know which one has more in it. Okay. But let's take something in the impossible things box. So let's say you have the Penrose staircase, which is the staircase that you can keep climbing up and up and up and, uh, and, you know, and, uh, and never, uh, never go anywhere. Right. So it's, it's optical illusion. Right. But let's say, the, the Penrose staircase. If you say, well, can God do that? So what happens if you say the answer is yes? Then it becomes possible. Then it becomes possible. Okay, well, what oh. about this other thing, this three-pronged, two-pronged fork, right? So if you say, can he make that? And you say, yes, okay, now it's possible again. Well, what about this like crazy, wacky triangle that has like one side, you know? Yes, <laughs> okay, so it's possible. So what happens is if you say that God can do the impossible, you end up annihilating the category of the impossible. And now the question doesn't start, but for a different reason, because what you've done is you've asked a question as though there are two possibilities, but by committing to one of the possibilities, you dissolve all the things in that category. So it's not really a genuine question either. Uh, but can't someone then just redefine and say, everything is possible by God? There is yes, nothing right. Possible. But then you're not asking the question anymore. You're stating of statement, uh -huh. right? Then that's not a yeah. That's that's the the you know people misuse the phrase begging the question all the time, right? But uh, begging the question, according to my understanding, oh, I'm gonna, maybe I'm gonna embarrass myself here, is when you like build the premise into the question, you know, so it's not a genuine question, you know. So I, I don't know if that's exactly what this is, but it certainly resembles it. So here the answer is the question in its raw form is a non-starter because if again if you say can God do the impossible, well once you say is it's that once you say yes then there's no, no, no longer, it's no longer impossible. So now there's nothing in that category. You know, mm. now the reason why this is fine if you ask it about a human is like, if, if you say like, you know, uh, does this person know everything that is possible for human beings to know? So you can say yes, 
because you're not saying it's definitively, these things are definitively impossible. But here you're trying to take just the abstract category of impossible and saying, well, anything that you want to call impossible actually is possible for God. So you're just wiping away the whole category of the impossible. You're just walking in as if you're asking a question, but saying, no, I really hold that everything is possible. So it's not just, it's just not a genuine question. Okay. Okay. Very good. Okay. Now this fourth point is the last logical point, And it's really more of a psychological point. And it's not an answer, okay? It is a question that I had, which is, if the answers to these questions are so simple, again, okay, I'm not saying it's simple like elementary, but like you see the answers and it's like, once you see it, then okay, of course, why didn't I see this before? So if the answers to these questions are so simple, why does the question feel so powerful? <laughs> okay, and it does feel powerful and people can think yeah. about this question for days, you know? So why does it feel so powerful? So this is my own theory, okay? I think the question feels powerful because it, its force stems from a childish notion of omnipotence, okay? So I'm gonna engage in some psychology here. I'm not a psychologist, I should have added that to the list, okay? But I think that this is just based on common sense, okay? Children are powerless relative to the adults around them, okay? That's why children fantasize about unlimited power, about magic and wishes and like fantasy, you know? They want to be able to do anything, but they don't think through what it means to do anything. They just want it to not be restricted. So when you tell a child you can't, in the child's mind, that automatically is bad because I want to be able to do anything and you say you can't, well, that's bad, okay? So we grow up with this feeling of, I want to be able to do anything. It's like this Superman fantasy, right? And we don't think it through because we are children. We can't think through. We don't have the ability to think. We just have this feeling that restriction is bad, no restriction is good, okay? And then what happens is we grow older and we project this childish notion of omnipotence onto our model of God's omnipotence, okay? And we feel like, oh, if you say that God can't do something, then that's bad. Anytime someone hears the statement, God can't, then that's bad, okay? That's not coming from logic. That's coming from residual childhood wishes, okay? And that's why it, that, that's why it blinds us to the question. And this is an example of what there, you know, there, there are Chachmei HaMasor who call this Avodazar Shabalev, Okay, Vodazar of the heart, not halakhic Vodazar, but where you psycholo psychological idolatry, where you let your psyche and your imagination dictate your beliefs about Hashem and how you relate to him without even realizing it. That's the drusha in Shabbos daf Kufhe Amud Beis, on the Pesach until Lo Yevacha El Zar. Don't, um, there should not be a uh, plain shot among you, a foreign god. And then Chazal say, Ezehu, uh, I forgot the exact lashon, Ezehu, um, uh, 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 like, uh, uh, who is the strange God who's in you? That's the, that's the, uh, the psyche and the imagination. Wow. You know? Yeah. So that's, that is the answer number four, which again, is not an answer to the question, which is the force of the question stems from a childish notion of omnipotence. And it's time for us to all grow up. Okay. And I use this analogy with my ninth graders when I have uh, the, the Tefillah one-on-one class, I tell them that like, you know, a lot of them are very, whenever, you know, I, I talk a lot about God and a lot of them have like, you know, this is the first time they're hearing that God's not physical, that God doesn't have emotions, all this stuff. So sometimes they can feel a little bit like, you know, um, upset or betrayed. Like I've, I was fed lies, you know, and the analogy I give them, as I said, you know how on your phone, there are like automatic updates to your apps, but then certain apps you need to do manual uh, uh, updates. So I say when you're in like second grade, you know, your teacher teaches you what they know, presumably, and then they pass you on. And they kind of just assume that like your, your, your understanding of these topics is going to get automatically updated, right? But what often happens is there needs to be a manual update. Some teacher needs to teach you an age-appropriate idea of God at that stage. But what happens is you get passed on to the next teacher and 
they don't teach you and next teacher and they don't teach you. And what happens is you get to ninth grade and you're still working with second graders ideas about God and no one updates it. And, and then when you hear the update, then you feel like, Oh, why would, why didn't I know this? And again, unfortunately it's, it's usually the, the teacher's faults, but, um, but, but that's why I think people are so shocked when they hear things like this. Now, I want to just step in quickly sure. and just yeah. say that, you know, we've talked about this on the podcast as well with the, you know, what's lacking in Jewish education today, but I'm really upset that I didn't have you as a high school Rebbe. <laughs> yeah. right, well, you know, teaching you got a podcast now, so you can have me whatever you want. Yeah, but yeah. Teaching, teaching philosophy to uh, the ninth grader, that's a dream. Yeah, I mean, and look, I, I'm thankful. I got to have a shout out to Mrs. Eisenman, to my, my principal, because she she saw that, like, you know, it's important to teach these people. So I taught every single student who came through the school in ninth grade for a whole year and, like, got them grounded in the Yisodeh Torah and, like, they could ask all their questions. So, okay. So really quickly before we move on from this stage, what is the difference between these answers? Okay, so answer number one is can God create a rock he can't lift? No, he can't because he's perfect. That answer uproots the hidden premise, which is um, that limitation equals imperfection. So here we're challenging that premise. Limitation does not equal imperfection. Answer number two, which is that the question itself is absurd because it's predicated on a logical paradox. That answer is, is willing to say, okay, fine, maybe limitations are an imperfection, but the question is illegitimate because it's based on a paradox. You can't even ask the question, okay? Uh, okay. Question three, which is that the question in its raw form is a non-starter. The advantage of this is I'm saying that the question is illegitimate because according to one of the two allegedly possible answers, the question cannot be asked. The question is rigged is how I would say it. Like you rigged the question where you can't answer that God can do the impossible because once you say that, all the impossibles like fall like dominoes, you know? And question number four is not really an answer, but it reveals the man behind the curtain, or in this case, the kid behind the curtain. And the Amazing. curtain is actually, uh, I just realized, that's the muscle of the Rambam in the Shimon Prakim in the seventh parak, the muscle of the veils, right? Which are, are psychological and intellectual imperfections that block our view of God. So I didn't mean for, I, I mean, there's a, there's a Wizard of Oz reference, not a Rambam Shimon Prakim <laughs> reference, but you know, it's good, good reference Rambam also. Okay, so the takeaway, again, I'm gonna summarize the takeaway after each thing. Takeaway is when you hear questions like this, you should recognize that such questions are often rooted in a false premise, a paradox, a non-starter, and or a childish idea of omnipotence. That's what I found. Maybe there are more categories, but I found that, that again, there, there are more ways to ask this question than what I asked here, but like, you know, you, you'll find that this is usually the case. Okay. That was so helpful. Okay, good, good. And that's just, that's, we didn't even get to the Mepharshim yet, okay? All right. So now let's go to the Mepharshim, and this might this might um, surprise or disappoint some of you, okay? Which is, we're going to do the Rambam. The Rambam has a whole parak, which is the Mornebuchim Chelet Gimel um, uh, parak Tesvav. Oh, and by the way, I'll, I'll apologize to your listeners again. I, I said this uh, to Ben last time. Um, I, I, I pronounce things in an Ashkenazic way, so sue me. Okay. Nothing, nothing to apologize. Okay. For. You might get you, you might get sued, but nothing. Yeah, to yeah. <laughs> if they don't want to. They don't want to let me rejoin the Chabura, Then uh, that's, that's their uh, that's, that's their lack. Okay. So here's what I discovered in preparing for this pocket. Again, up until now, I'd only taught this to high schoolers. So when I I sat down and took another look at this Ramam, I realized I did not understand the parak. Okay. He devotes a full chapter to it. There's a lot more subtlety and nuance than I initially realized. And I don't feel competent to present what the Ramam is saying here. But what I do feel competent to do is to borrow excerpts from the Ramam and sprinkle them throughout this, uh, the rest of this presentation. Okay, so we're going to just borrow one point. This next point is not even unique to the Ramam. In fact, almost everyone we're going to quote says this. But uh, I am going to quote this uh, phrase from the Ramam here. So he says in the course of this parak. So again, if you're interested, read that parak. Okay, but I, I'm not going to go through the whole thing. 
He says, um, likewise, it is impossible that God should produce a being like himself or destroy himself or make himself physical or change himself. All of these things are in the category of the impossible and cannot be attributed to God. Okay, and then he says, it has become clear then that according to every opinion in every school, there are things which are impossible and which cannot exist. That's the part um, in the chapter that I'm skipping here, okay? The power to bring about these impossible things cannot be ascribed to God. The fact that he cannot change them does not imply inability or deficiency of power on his part. So summary here, okay? Summary is that it is impossible for God, he gives four examples, impossible for God to duplicate himself, destroy himself, make himself physical or change himself. And then he says his inability to do these impossible things does not imply inability or deficiency on his part, meaning it doesn't infringe on his omnipotence. So my question is, why can't Hashem do these four things? What would you say? Well, then if he duplicates himself, then he's no longer the powerful one. Okay. Uh, even more problematic than that. Well, What's he, the... well he, ha he has a rival now. Basically, okay. Even more more powerful than that in terms of think Ikarim. There's yeah, one God. One. He's yeah. one, right? So if he duplicates yeah. himself, then he's no longer one. That's a definitive statement in the Torah. Exactly. Okay. Why can't he destroy himself? Because then there would be no echad. There'd be zero. Okay. Right. So then there'd be no echad. There'd be zero. Right. So if you want to put it in terms, if we're doing echad as the second ikker, if you want to put it in terms of the first ikker of God's existence, that He's an independent existence. He can't not exist, right? Eki asher eki. I am the existing being who is the existing being, or I will be what I will be. However you want to explain that. Yudke vavke, the Raman explains, seems to be an idea of intrinsic existence. So it wouldn't be, that would go against uh, the, the the first ikker. Why can't he make himself physical? Because he would become finite and limited. Right, physically. finite and limited, physical, that's the third ikker. And then changing himself is the fourth ikker, okay? Of God is eternal and unchanging. So the answer to all these questions is, he can't do these things because they undermine his nature or his definition. Okay. These limitations are defining his perfection. Okay. I would say differently. Okay. And, and this is the way I, okay. I, there's something I do with my ninth graders also, which is the, the first session I ask them, who is Hashem? Okay. So I'll get answers from the ninth graders that say, he's the one who created the world or he's the one who gave the Torah or he watches over the Jews. And I'll say, no, no, no. Don't tell me his resume. Tell me who he is. Okay. So, Depends on what you mean by perfection, right? Because God, God's perfection, you know, we say in, in Hazinu, uh, the, the rock or the quarry, according to the Rambam, um, his work is perfect. And um, uh, his work is, is perfect um, because all of his ways are justice. So, so, so I prefer, because the word perfection can refer to God's works or his essence, I, I, I want to just be clear here. God can't do these things because if he did them, he would not be Hashem. Okay, and, and the way I would say it is like this, any being who could duplicate himself or could destroy himself or could make himself physical or could change himself would ipso facto not be a shem. We would be talking about some other deity. Yeah, so, because, because you, you can't say that God really is perfect. You could say God is not imperfect. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I realized what I did there. Now I understand. My okay, bad. yeah, yeah. And again, it's not like you said anything. Well, I just want to be a little My bit bad. clearer. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. My okay, God. so so God cannot do anything that is uh, that would undermine his his existence. Okay, and and if you say, see, here's the thing, I, I started with the answers based on logic because that that first logical answer of God can't do anything which would render himself imperfect. I think that's common sense reasoning that a lot of people can grasp. But look, I, I guarantee you, there are going to be listeners who disagree with um, with things that I say here, and I hope that they that they email me, okay, so that we can talk it out. But I, I want to make a, a wager 
I don't think anyone who is religious or who, you know, who purports to believe in, in, you know, in the Ikarim at least can disagree with this. I think if someone says, I believe that God can become not one, that person is not believing in a God that is one then. I mean, you know, like it's, I, I, you know, maybe you can argue to me that like you can have an idea like this, but at least in the framework of the Ramam Zikarim, and fine, you, if you don't agree with the Ramam Zikarim, then we're not having this discussion anyway. Like, you know, the, the, then we have to discuss, then we have to go back and say, what are the Ikarim? But uh, yeah. So the takeaway here is God cannot do that which will undermine his nature because then he wouldn't be a chef. Okay? Right. Good. Okay. All right. Next, Mi'iri. Now, I debated whether or not to include this uh, because there are points that he's going to bring up which are not going to be addressed till later. Okay. I'm, I'm including this for two reasons. I'll say ahead of time. For, for a category of examples he brings and for a practical takeaway. Okay. So, my uh, as as uh, I said in my uh, you know my my first episode, uh, Mishle is my favorite sefer of Tanakh, my favorite thing to teach. If I could teach one thing for the rest of my life, it would be Mishle. Okay, so Mishle Yud Dalid Tesvav says Pesi Yamin davar Va'arum Yavin Laashuro, which translates to Pesi is very hard to translate. We'll see tra uh, definitions in a second. A naive simpleton will believe everything, but a cunning person will understand his every step. Okay. Um, it's a whole sugya what a pesi is. Uh, my favorite definition is Rabbeinu Yona, which can be found in his commentary on Mishle 122. He has a whole paragraph there, also on 1.5, I think, or 1.4. But I'm just going to quote the first part. He says, Pesayim are people with weak minds who are duped by the words of those who entice and mislead. Included in Pesayim are people whose opinions are confused, and similarly those whose desires, whose desire confounds them and causes them to veer from the path. So that's his definition. He goes on at length much more with his definition. My definition is based on something that he actually quotes, which is they call the person a pesi because he's mispate bietro. He's seduced by his own yeter. My definition is a pesi is someone who operates based on the principle of what feels good is good, what feels bad is bad, what feels true is true, and what feels false is false, which I think describes a large percentage of mankind. You know, I think most people, that's how they make their decisions about their values and their ideas. Yeah. Okay. Of course. So the Miri, the Miri's approach to Mishle usually involves two layers. He has the Derech Nigla, which is the external meaning, which is accessible to everybody. And then the esoteric meaning is really usually more for people who are working on their internal perfection. So here they're very related, but he says, a naive simpleton will believe everything he hears, whether it's possible or impossible, probable or improbable, but a cunning person, one who gains wisdom with his own mind, okay, that's Hamishakem Bedato, he makes himself wise with his mind, which I think in English, the best word we have for that is a thinker or an autodidact, if you want to be fancy, will understand his every step. In other words, he'll understand where he treads. This is a metaphor for someone who gains wisdom with his own mind, determining whether a given proposition is possible or impossible, probable or improbable. The sages of ethics said, um, If the speaker is a naive simpleton, then let the, the, the listener should be a clear thinker. And even though this is a simple lesson, it is fitting for every intelligent person to test with his mind what is proper to believe. So in plain English, he's just saying, anytime you're going to believe something, don't just accept it like a pesty would do. Investigate and ask, is this possible or impossible, probable or improbable, and go through each step with your mind. Okay, now, why do we need to be told this? Okay, it's very obvious. So Mishle sometimes teaches new ideas and chidushim in, in, in concept, but many times Mishle will teach you something, not because the idea is new, but because it's not real to your emotions. So 
you know, Nisley works with these archetypes like a Pessy or an Arum, but in reality, no one is purely a Pessy. No one's really an Arum. We all have a Pintle Pessy within us. Okay. We all have a, a spark of naive simplicity in us. Some have <laughs> a conflagration. Okay. But, um, but uh, the, you know, what happens is we end up um, compartmentalizing. Okay. Like you could have a person who, let's say you have a chemist. Okay. And when he is in his chemistry lab, then he is, uh, he's, he's, you know, checking every step or you have a mathematician and whenever she's doing a proof, then she checks every proof. But when it comes to medicine, then he relies on homeopathic cures. And when, when it comes to uh, her love life, then she doesn't like think about like, you know, anything rational. She just says, Oh, you know, it's, it's, it's my brush air, you know? So is, is this kind of his way of saying like cognitive dissonance? Um, I'm I'm applying the concept of cognitive dissonance to this and saying that that a person will often compartmentalize and in one realm be a pessy and other realms not be a pessy and you have to to like realize when you're you're not being consistent and consistently apply this principle. Okay, um, in case anyone's wondering, by the way, I, I when I was going through this with some of the students earlier, then they asked, "Isn't Arum a bad thing?" Uh, like when I say Arum, who do the you snake. think of the, the snake, snake, right? So it's funny in Mishlei then Arum is a positive thing, generally speaking, okay? But in, in uh, elsewhere in Tanakh, it's a negative thing. And in Mishle, Arum is the opposite of Pesi. So just to give you a little tidbit here, my definition of Arum uh, that unifies the two is Arum is a person who is capable of, of recognizing how the emotions distort your thinking. So if you use that for good, then you will be on guard against succumbing to the being to the pessy you know, to the pessy in you and you'll you'll not let your emotions sway your thinking in making these ideas but if you're evil you'll use this knowledge to manipulate other people's emotions and get your way so this is like a fork in the road that you can be an arum latov or an arum lara okay now if we go on in the miiri he applies it to our subject he says like this According to the esoteric explanation of the Pasuk, one must apply this principle in matters of religious beliefs, which he calls emunos, and matters of science, okay, chachmos. In matters of religious belief, a person must be careful not to believe things which are definitively impossible for him, for God, blessed is he, and not to place in the category of the possible that which is inherently impossible. And he gives mm -hmm. examples, okay? He says, the, the cunning person will strive to understand which of the impossible things, and there are quotation marks there, okay, it is proper to believe, even though they are highly improbable, such as the miracles which involve changes in the laws of nature and the fundamental principles which derive from them, all of which are not inherently impossible and for which there is no absolute disproof. And all the more so for those ideas which require greater, stronger, and more forced reasoning to undermine than to uphold. Okay, so in other words, if you ask your average uh, atheist, you know, can... Uh, can the water turn to blood? He'll say, no, it's impossible, right? We know though that it's not intrinsically impossible. God created nature and he created the laws of, you know, uh, of, you know, of physics and, and can manipulate them at his will. And there's no disproof to it. Okay. So the cunning person will see which things seem impossible, but really you should believe. Okay. Continuing on in the Miri and which beliefs are appropriate to utterly reject, such as the contraries of first principles, like the transformation of a substance into an accident or an accident into a substance. Okay, hold on to that. We're not going to actually use that example because Sadiqan is going to give us easier examples. Or God making himself physical or changing or creating a being like himself and other such things which are absolutely intrinsically impossible. And the Hebrew is nimnaos b'muchlat b'teva kayam. Okay, 
So here he has two categories, things that are quote unquote impossible, which really just means improbable, but they are possible. And then things which are definitively impossible. And in the definitively impossible, he gives two categories, contraries of first principles, and then things about God that the Ramam gave. Okay. Now I'm going to read this next paragraph before we summarize, just because I think you guys will like this, even though it's not, um, even though it's not uh, directly related to our topic. Likewise, he says, likewise in matters of science on which religious belief is not contingent and which we are not compelled to believe on the basis of speculative philosophy, such as the existence or non-existence of demons. Okay, yeah, yeah, hot topic. Okay, the non-existence or existence of atoms, which was a topic that was debated back then. The non-existence or existence of the void, which is another thing that the Raman talks about in the morning of him in I think three, uh, eight, maybe about whether nothingness is a, the, the atoms, the atoms you're for, sorry, the atoms you're referred to are the Kalam, right? The Kalam. Belief. I think they were big into that. Yeah, I'm, I'm not so uh, knowledgeable about that. I know that I think Lucretius and Democritus, Democritus were the thinkers who first promulgated that belief. Um, okay. And uh, um, belief in transmigration. Okay. I think the term he uses here is Hetok, and I'm pretty sure he means transmigration of the soul, like AKA like uh, reincarnation. Reincarnation. Yeah, I think, but I couldn't be mistaken about what he means. The attribution of the vital force to plants and the like, and notions about the components of the soul and its existence, and other matters which some of the early authorities mistakenly thought to be true. So these are all examples which he is saying are things that our religious belief is not contingent on, and you also are not compelled to believe them based on speculative philosophy. So I think it's interesting that he puts demons in that category, right? Like, I think a lot of people would feel that- Well, I, I think a lot of things in these categories today yeah, right. are like, basically like a, a new- we have like a new Yudgimalikram today. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't make done. a video with that as the thumbnail. Ravish <laughs> coins 13 new Yikram. Yeah. No. Yeah. Okay. And then he, then he says at the end, he throws in this like a uh, sarcastic line from EO uh, based on EO. If only they would fall utterly silent and that would be considered wisdom. Their wisdom. Okay. So summary here is like this. Okay. And again, we're not going to get a lot from the area uh, now. He, this is going to be unpacked by the uh, uh, Sefer Karim. So his, his main point is that a thinker will assess every belief to determine whether it's possible, impossible, probable, or improbable. And this is equally in matters of religion and science. And I think this is something that maybe your audience, I don't know, maybe your audience does not need to hear, but I think this is a chiddush in, in certain circles that you should apply your, make decisions based on your mind in religion and in science. You know, this is the idea of hamada, that it's not two different realms. You know, it is, you know, the what you're talking about physics, metaphysics, or, uh, or, or, or religion, philosophy, theology, you should use your mind in, in every case. Okay. We don't just like turn off our minds and accept beliefs just based on acceptance. Um, and then the Meiri says there's two categories. He will reject things which are intrinsically impossible, whether by logic, contrary to first principles, which we'll get to in a little while, or by metaphysics, God making himself physical, changing, creating a being like himself. And then he'll accept things which might seem improbable, but are warranted, like the miracles in the Torah and all the beliefs based on miracles. Okay, so the takeaway that I want to get from here is to be a thinker and determine whether each belief, religious or scientific, is possible or impossible, probable or improbable. Okay, and you need to do this consistently. And again, it's not an intellectual chiddush. This is something that we need to constantly remind ourselves, am I going on autopilot in any case? You know, am I like just accepting something based on authority? Now, I don't want to say that everyone is capable, not everyone is capable of delving into all these questions at every time in their development. You know, there are times when you need to accept things based on authority, but the ideal to strive for is where you can verify everything that thing that can be verified, you know, and you assess, is this probable or improbable, possible or impossible? Okay, any questions on this? No, I actually, okay. I, I actually want to just maybe point out and add to this that sure. I think the, the Chazal were very sensitive to this as well because even when it comes to miracles, because, you know, the idea of miracles in a way is 
kind of people will question, oh, well, if God is, you know, perfect, quote unquote, you know, why, why does he need to kind of fix the, right. the, the, the software problem, right? The, right, right. He needs to do like a software update. Yeah. So, so they, the Chazal were very careful to kind of um, pin all of these kind of miracles into like creation, Right. right. Build so so that so that it's in the it's in the realm of 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 science and and um you know the building blocks of the world. Right. So it's not it's not just its own thing where God changes. Correct. You right. Change. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah, that's another example of the unity. Okay, so now we're gonna get to Sadigon. Okay, and Sadigon takes a uh, so he's the earliest of our sources. I'm actually gonna start off. Um, we're going to go to Moon's Videos 2.13, but I'm going to start off with a quote from the Rambam in that same parak. okay? I told you I'd be sprinkling the Rambam throughout this. So the Rambam has this one line, okay? He says, the impossible has a stable nature, one whose stability is constant and is not made by a maker. It is impossible to change it in any way. That's the first line of the parak, and if anyone knows what that means, then please explain it to me, okay? Because I, uh, I, I think I know what it means, but like, I didn't want, this is why I didn't want to give share on this. But this next line is what I wanted to highlight. Hence, we do not ascribe to God the power of doing what is impossible. Okay. Now, I read that and I was thinking to myself, it's interesting that he doesn't say outright, God cannot do the impossible. He says, we do not ascribe to God the power of doing what is impossible. Now, maybe the Ramam does mean that God can't do the impossible, but let me show you Sadigon. Okay. Sadigon writes in Amunus Bideos 2.13, the soul lauds and praises God justly and uprightly, not by attributing to him absurdities and nonsense. Now, he gives three great examples. One should not, therefore, praise him, praise God, for making five to be more than ten without adding anything to the former. Okay, so you can't make five more than ten unless you add. Nor should one praise God for being able to put the earth through the hole of a ring without making the one narrower or the one wider. Okay nor for being able to bring back yesterday once it has already gone by, for all these things are impossible. So those are three examples of impossible things, and these are different than the examples that we've seen, right? This doesn't have to do with God himself, okay? So this doesn't undermine his definition, but he's saying these are impossible. Now, before we go on, which one of these three examples do you think people will have the greatest objection to? Not being, not being able to bring back yesterday yeah not being able to bring back yesterday right really so, in my experience people always say wait what do you mean god can't bring back yesterday like you know i i took that as the most obvious like okay yeah okay fine then you're one step ahead of the game okay but, but it's how people think people people want to think like you know that in superman right flying around, around the world make everything go around to make everything go backwards yeah. yeah exactly right he lives yeah. outside of time God. exactly yeah that's a good another good example of literally the superman fantasy so thankfully if you do find this to be prob uh, problematic this is the only one of these examples that's actually backed by halakha right do you know what halakha i'm referring to this you're talking about the one about yesterday yeah um uh, no nothing so it's an open mission but i'm going to quote it from the shulchan Aruch just because to show we paskin like it tefillas shav okay so the shulchan Aruch in simon reish lamed oh, of course yes one yes, who yes. prays okay meaning in this case praying doesn't mean doing the whole shaman right means making a request yeah, yeah, for yeah. Hashem about something in the past and he gives two classic examples okay this is from the gemara for example he if he enters the city and hears an outcry in the city okay and says may it be your will that this cry is not in my house Okay, or if his wife is more than 40 days pregnant, or I don't know nowadays, according to science, at what point the gender is determined, but whatever, 
And he says, may it be your will that my wife gives birth to a male. Okay. Or what one of my students said is if I, uh, if you recorded the, the, uh, the Seahawks football game and then you're watching it like hours later and you start davening for a certain team to win, you know, <laughs> so all these things were already set in the past. Okay. So this is a tefillah in vain. It's a tefillah shav and it is prohibited to, to daven such a tefillah. Okay. Rather a person should pray for the future and give thanks on the past. And, you know, a point occurred to me today about this, that like, you know, was just so obvious. I just never thought about this before. You know, if you could daven to bring back yesterday, you know what I would have done if I were Moshe after the Chet HaEgel, instead of davening for God to forgive the Jewish people, I would just daven for Hashem. Hashem, can you just rewind a day and I'll make sure to come down from the mountain like earlier, you know? Like it, it's it's such a like, um, what do they call it in uh, like Deus es, uh, Ex Machina, you know? Like like it's such an easy solution. Why did none of the Nevi'im avail themselves of this? Well, because it's impossible. You, God can't change the past, okay? Okay, now, so Sadiun so far is saying as follows. He's saying, so he's taking it for granted that certain things are impossible for God, but he's focusing on what we can say about him. He's saying we shouldn't say that God can do the impossible. Let me read it again. Um, the soul lauds and praises God justly and uprightly, not by attributing to him absurdities and nonsense. And he gives the examples for all these things are impossible. So in other words, if you were to say, I'm going to give my own example, which is much easier. Okay. When a person says God can make a square circle, they think they're praising him because they think they're saying, oh, God, God, you know, God is omnipotent, but they're really not. Okay. Why are they not praising God? Why, why is that like, a, a, what do you mean when he says that you're ascribing absurdity to God when you say he can make a square circle? How would you explain that? Because you're you're making him you're making him limited again because in a bad way actually okay you because could say square, that because a, square, because a squared circle uh, would mean you're taking something impossible and making it possible right so you're, you're okay so you could say that and I'll give you the analogy of like um, you know if you went to Picasso and said you know Picasso you're so great because you can make a messed up painting you know that's not praise you know so 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 saying you know, so you could say that making a square circle is like that i think that there's a more um uh in my mind fundamental reason so this is um a, a, a circle is not a square so by saying that right. it can do so, so it's just it's it's just a ridiculous notion to be okay exactly there's so, nothing so, praiseworthy about this it's, right it's so, so, so I'll, 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 I'll translate this into a, a, lang a different uh, a different expression saying that god can make a square circle is no different than saying God can make a blah, blah, blah. yeah and on the screen is <laughs> okay right it square circle is a contradiction in terms there's no such thing as a square circle okay and I have a friend uh uh I believe when Rabbi Zimmer first taught high school I think he told his students if anyone can draw me a square circle I'll give you a hundred percent on every assignment and every test for the rest of the year you know and like believe it or not you'd have kids who would try to draw it and I've, I've had this also kids will hear this and not uh and they'll draw me a square with a circle inside of it. I'm like, man, that's not a square circle. Or they'll draw a square with rounded corners. I'm like, have you looked up the definition of square and circle? You know, so, so square circle is, is, is a contradiction in terms, okay? So saying God can make a square circle is like saying God can make a gobbledygook, which is just nonsense. It's not actually praising God, okay? okay. okay. Then Sadi goes on and he says this, and this is a, a, a subtle, smooth point. Okay, you're going to want to put this in your arsenal to pull out for when uh, the when the time is right. He says, of course, certain heretics ask often ask us about such matters, and we do indeed answer them that God is able to do anything. This thing, however, that they ask of him is not anything because it is impossible, and the impossible is nothing. 
Brilliant. Therefore, as though they were to ask, is God capable of doing what is nothing? For that is what they are truly asking. Amazing. Now, it is amazing, but I could hear a person reading this and being like, wait, 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 wait. Did he just pull a fast one? Okay, so I'm, I'm going to slow it down. Okay, so first let me summarize, which is, he says, if someone asks, can God do anything? We can truthfully say yes. Why? Because that which is impossible is not a thing. And this then allows us to praise God meaningfully because we can say God can do anything, which is what the people want to say when they want to praise God for being omnipotent, right? That's really the drive behind the rock question is people want to believe that God is omnipotent and he could do anything. It's just that people haven't thought about what that means. But if you think about it, it means he can do all the things that actually are things. Now, let me uh, demonstrate this visually. Okay. So on the screen, I have the question, can God do anything? I have two columns. On the left is a column of that says things. And on the right is a column that says non-things. In the things column, we have a sample. Things that God can do are create the universe, destroy the universe, make it rain, make the sunshine, split the sea, resurrect the dead, give the Torah, bring Mashiach. Okay, and there's lots and lots of other things there. Under the non-things, we have li uh, another list, which is make five to be more than ten without adding anything, put the ring, the hole through the ring of the earth, you know, bring back the past, make a square circle, destroy himself. Okay, now if you look at the things on that list, okay, you'll see that those are non-things and God cannot do that. But God can do everything on the list of things that are things. So if you ask, can God do anything? Yes, he can. It's just that all that other stuff is just, those are all, for all intents and purposes, those are gibberish. They're nothing. So the inability to do something that is not even a thing is not a lack. Okay? Brilliant. Yeah. So leave it to Sadi So the takeaway here is, Sadigon is saying we gain nothing by ascribing to God absurdities and possibilities, but we can truly say God can do anything. Okay. He can, because he could do anything, just not any non thing. Yeah. Yeah. He can't do non things. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll throw in a, um, this is going to mean nothing to most of your audience. <laughs> I'm going to say it anyway. Okay. So I'm a big uh, uh, a fan of Magic the Gathering, the card game. Okay. And there's a creature called Progenitus. Uh, that is a 10-10 that has protection from from everything. And the pro player, Paulo Vito Damodorosa, said that beginning players often have a hard time understanding uh, how the rules work with Progenitus because they'll ask, well, can I target Progenitus with this ability? And he'll ask, he says, he'll say, it says protection from everything. Well, is this a thing? Yes. Well, then it has protection. And they'll say, well, what about this? Well, is it a thing? Yes. So same thing here. When you say, can God do anything? Ask yourself, is it a thing? If it's a thing, then the answer is yes, God can do it. If it's not a thing, then God can't do it, and that's not a problem. Okay. Okay. Now, this fifth point, yes, Denti. So, um, I'm in my mind right now, I went back to how um, all the things that we say that God can do, uh, most of the things, uh, you list them based on the Karim. Right. So, I was just going back to that for a minute, and I'm thinking, well, that's interesting. So basically what the Ikarim are asking of us, at least the yeah. first few, right? Yeah. Is basically yeah. just to assert a normal conception of God. Okay, that's a good question, okay? Um, I was working with a premise that we are, um, that we're walking into this discussion with the Ikarim and we're either relying on them based on tradition or based on, on our own firsthand proof of them, okay? But some of the examples that I gave are, are ideas that no matter how you accept them, you won't be able to say that God can violate them. That was a really 
poorly constructed sentence. Let me say that again. <laughs> that that let's say the example that um that God is one, right? So some people are accepting that based on tradition. Some people can prove it. Okay. Mm-hmm. But either way, if you said the one God, the God who is Hashem Echad can make a duplicate of himself, that just results in an undermining of, 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 of the being who you're talking about. You know, you're no longer talking about Hashem if, if he can duplicate himself, or it's a contradiction in terms, right? Then, then you're saying that God can be one and not one at the same time. Right. So it doesn't require faith. It requires logic. To, okay, to, to realize the answer to the question requires logic, but you can accept the notion of God being one based on tradition. Uh, okay, so if you've not logically deducted it yet or deduced it yet, then the, the Ikarim sort of uh, bring you to the right place. Right? That's definitely you... true, but I think I'm saying the, the, the opposite direction. I'm saying that once you have the Ikarim, however you get them, whether you get them by inheritance or whether you get them through your own efforts, once you have them, the answer to the question is going to involve applying logic to the Ikarim. Now, you could apply it to the Ikarim that you received by tradition and you can't prove, or you can apply it to the Ikarim that you proved, but you have to apply logic to the Ikarim. Uh, yeah. Very cool. Very okay. cool. Sorry. Sorry. No, that's that. okay. No, no, I'm glad you're asking questions. Okay. okay. Now, this next part is the most difficult part of the entire shear, and this is the part that I have gotten the most pushback on um, in every time I teach it. Okay. There are students who I've encountered at weddings a decade after I taught them who will remind you of this point and say, Ravish I still disagree with you about this point. <laughs> okay. Um, so, so, and, it, and it's also probably the most subtle and nuanced point. Okay. Just I'm, put, buckle your seatbelts if you're, if you're in the car. Okay. I mean, hopefully yeah. you're anyway. Okay. This is reviews of Albo in the Sefer Ikarim. And we're going to do two prokim, uh, book one, chapter 22 and book three, chapter 25. Okay. Book one, chapter 22, he says, not all beliefs bring one to flourishing. Now, flourishing is my translation of the term he used in Hebrew, which is Hatzlacha. The best term that I know of for Hatzlacha, I know Hatzlacha means success, but I like the Greek term eudaimonia, which I understand to mean human flourishing. And the analogy is just like a plant has a certain nature and a certain potential. And if you give it the right amount of water and sunshine and, and soil and whatever, it will actualize that potential to its full degree. A human being also has a certain potential, mainly in the telemelikim, but you also need your physical needs and psychological needs to be taken care of. And when you do that, you flourish, you actualize your potential. So human flourishing, okay, is, is what we mean here. So not all beliefs lead to that. He says, for belief in that which is impossible does not facilitate flourishing. No person doubts this. For the belief that causes a person to flourish is belief in that which is true because it is true. Not belief in that which doesn't exist, that it does exist, nor in that which exists, that it doesn't exist. Now, I'm going to stop here. When he says no person doubts this, there are definitely people who, who, who hold that you should believe things that are... Um, that are uh, are you know above rationality they say right or that are absurd okay but I don't think you'll find people certainly not theologians who say that you should believe false beliefs and that will bring you to your perfection okay like I don't think anyone says like let's say like the Christians who we're going to revisit later on at the end who believe in the Trinity they say that the Trinity involves like a contradiction but they don't say you should believe in false stuff okay. No one says that. And the only person who does say that is if you're a, an epistemological utilitarian, okay, who holds that it is sometimes advantageous to believe in something false because it will 
yield a good result, right? Like the classic example is if I'm running, uh, you know, to uh, and I'm being chased by like a cheetah, okay, and I get to a cliff, and uh, and there and I know that there's like a 99% chance that I won't make it across. So what should I do? Should I believe that there's a 99% chance, or should I believe that 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 there that you know that I can make it? I should certainly believe that I can make it because then I'll put in the extra oomph to you know. But here's the thing: if you take if you prod a utilitarian enough, you poke them, you'll you'll get them to say, well, why do you believe you should do this thing? Why do you believe it's advantageous? And you'll get to them to make <laughs> you'll get to, to something that they believe is actually true, not based on utilitarianism. And then you say, well, should you believe something false? And they'll say no. <laughs> you know, it's so like they, they hold utilitarianism is the most advantageous philosophy. So so I, I think for for all intents and purposes, we could say that we, we're all on the same page here that that no one says you should believe false things. But then he raises a very big problem, which is, if so, it is proper to ask how we can tell whether something is subject, so whether something subject to belief is true and should be believed with complete conviction or is not true so that we can avoid believing in it. This is a difficult matter which we must endeavor to solve. So in other words, how do you tell what to believe in, what not to, and what's possible and what's not possible? Right. Okay, we, he goes on. We say that there are two types of impossibility. Some things are intrinsically impossible which he says is nimnaos kayamos be'atzman, about which it cannot be said that Hashem has the ability to do their opposite. For example, now it gives us a slew of examples. For example, the whole is greater than the part and the diagonal of a square is greater than the side. It cannot be said that Hashem has the ability to make the part equal to the whole or the diagonal of a square to be equal to the side or the angles of a triangle equal to more than two right angles or two contradictory propositions to be true at the same time about the same subject, or the affirmative and the negative to apply at the same time to the same thing in the same relation. Okay, now these are examples of a certain category of, of idea or concept. Anyone know what we call those in fancy philosophical jargon? Or in Hebrew? He doesn't use the term, but this is like a widely used term in the Rishonim. So these are called first principles or muskal rishon, okay? A first principle is a self-evident truth. And as Mortimer Adler points out in many of his books, when I say self-evident, don't think of Thomas Jefferson's use of self-evident, okay? Because he says, uh, you know, uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Those truths are not self-evident, that all men are created equal, okay? Like there have been thousands of years and many people who think that men are not created equal, okay? Self-evident in the strictly philosophical sense means it is literally impossible to think the opposite. Okay, and and if you are in doubt, try this at home. Okay, the the okay, the part, the concept of part and whole, we don't know where that comes to our mind from. Okay, Plato thought it came from the soul, like it's built into the soul. Aristotle thought that it was abstracted from like uh, sense perceptions, but that thought is in our mind, and it's just like a basic definition. No matter how hard you try, you cannot think of a whole being greater than the than uh, a part being greater than the whole. Okay, or the diagonal of a triangle or of a square, I guess, cannot be equal to the side. If you try, you can't do it. Okay, or quantity—that's another concept that's just in the mind. You cannot think that one equals two. Okay. So these are concepts, these are self-evident concepts that are impossible to think the opposite. Okay. Now you might ask yourself, why does he use these examples? Okay, we'll see. This is a big part of his philosophy. Yeah. Um, actually, I'm gonna hold if you have a question, Menti, I'm gonna hold off for a second. I want to see. No, this no, no. No, no, okay. no, no. My hand was resting here. That's all. Okay, fine. Okay, yeah. Yeah. yeah I know. No, so no, you no. gotta hold your head when you're thinking about these things, also. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So he says now like this. 
So this is one category of impossibility, intrinsically impossible things. Belief in such impossibilities or of, or those of their kind cannot even be accredited by the received tradition, by the Kabbalah, meaning you can't even have a tradition that compels you to believe it, okay? Nor can our senses testify to their reality or the reality of anything similar because the intellect cannot conceive of their existence, okay? This is going to be a refrain that goes through the entire thing, okay? Because the intellect can't conceive of their existence, then, then they're impossible. For this reason, it is not possible to believe in this or in anything like it, just as it is impossible for the received tradition to compel us to believe that Hashem can create another being exactly like himself. Now check out this, this reasoning. For then one would necessarily be the cause and the other the effect, and they would no longer be similar in all respects. Isn't that a beautiful explanation of why God can't create a, 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 a duplicate of himself? We argued based on Yichud Hashem. He's saying if God creates himself, now we hold that God is the, is the, uh, is the first cause, but now if he creates... A, a copy of himself so then that one was created and now that it's not the first be, cause and they're different be, yeah that can't be a first cause too can't be a first cause right. Be first. right exactly it wouldn't be a duplicate exactly it wouldn't be a duplicate so there's all these problems okay so i thought that was a smooth little move there okay like that. yeah so this is one category of impossible things intrinsically impossible things that the intellect cannot uh, uh conceive of okay then he goes on there is another type of impossibility which it is possible conceivable that god can make possible namely that which is merely impossible according to the laws of nature. Such things are not impossible for God, even though they are impossible according to the laws of nature. For example, resurrection of the dead, a human being who can live 40 days and 40 nights without food and drink, and other wondrous things of the same kind which are impossible by the laws of nature. This second kind of impossibility may be believed since the intellect can conceive of its existence. Okay, there's that phrase again. Therefore, we can say that anything that can be conceived by the intellect even though it is impossible by the laws of nature, may be believed to have existed in the past, to exist now, or to exist in the future. This is particularly true if experience testifies to the existence of the thing, even though the intellect denies its existence because it doesn't know the cause, such as the property of the magnet by which it attracts iron. The intellect cannot give a reason for it and is inclined to deny it, since, but since experience testifies to it and is something that the intellect can conceive, even though the intellect lacks knowledge of its cause, it is true without a doubt. Now, whenever I read this in class, there's always some, some kids who like giggle and be like, ha, they didn't understand magnets. And to which I could go back and say, I mean, do we understand much more about magnets? I mean, we took one step, which is to say, you know, they, 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 they you know, at first it was uh, determined that there's this force called magnetism. Okay. Then they unified it with electricity and, and now there's the electromagnetism, but that's still one of the fundamental forces of physics. Okay, we can't unify that yet with the other fundamental forces or find anything more prior. So I don't know how much more we know about math uh, about magnetism than they did back then. Okay, we just quantified it a lot. Okay, then he says similarly to those things which the senses testify among the wonders stated in scripture, such as the resurrection of the dead by Elisha during life and after death, remaining forty days and forty nights without food and drink, as Moses and Eliyahu did. Uh, the descendant, the descent of fire from heaven, the presence of the Shekhinah in Israel, and other wonders for which there exists testimony from the senses in the past, and which the intellect can conceive, even though it is not able to know the nature of the reality of their existence, all these things and, and things like them may be believed and fall under the omnipotence of He whose ability is unlimited. So let's summarize and then we'll analyze. Okay. So first, he says that belief in the impossible does not facilitate Hatzlacha. Okay. How can we tell what is possible or impossible? So what is his litmus test for telling whether something is possible or not? Um, if it's a first principle, it's impossible. Okay, if it's a first principle, then God cannot do it, correct. But if, if you had to suggest, you know, any belief, if I, if I have a, 
a multiple choice test, you know, and uh, or a true false test, right? You know, and say splitting the sea, square circle, you know, uh, diagonal being equal to the side, resurrection of the dead. What what is the 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 question that you'll apply to that to determine whether it is possible or impossible? If it's conceivable to the mind. If it's conceivable to the mind. Okay, that's his rule. Okay, so he says there are two types of impossibility. One is logical or intrinsic impossibility, which is impossible for the intellect to conceive. Then there's natural impossibility, which is impossible according to the laws of nature, but conceivable by the mind. Okay, so just to reiterate, he says intrinsic and logical impossibilities can never be believed, even on the basis of tradition, whereas natural impossibilities may be believed even if they are not comprehended by the intellect. Okay, so let's pause there, okay? Can you, can you explain by even on the basis of tradition? Yeah, meaning that if you had, if you found a, um, a, uh, a Gemara, let's say, okay, that said mm, that God can make a duplicate of himself, the fact that it's a Gemara would not be enough for you to compel you to believe it, okay? You, you, you say, I don't care if it's a Gemara, the mind can't conceive of it. It's impossible. Tradition can't trump logic. Exactly. Right. And logic here, we mean strict logic, meaning that the mind cannot conceive of it. There's a difference between, and let me just say this in my own words here. Right, because I feel, between, between because something I feel that, that number two, I feel like some people with number two, okay. I consider that also to be enough to be able to go against tradition. Okay, correct. So let me, let me clarify here, right? The splitting of the sea does not involve a logical contradiction. It just involves a violation of the laws of nature, and you can conceive of it in your mind. You can under you can imagine it, and you can like, you know, understand what it would mean for water to stand up straight. Okay, they do it in in the movies. Okay, but a square circle you cannot conceive of in your mind. Okay, two Hashem's you cannot conceive of in your mind, right? Because then they wouldn't be the same. So when we say impossible according to logic, we mean strict logic. We don't mean that you don't understand it. We don't mean that it, it, it stretches credulity. We mean that it is actually impossible. It involves a logical contradiction. Those mm -hmm. things God cannot do. Okay. Now, what would you guess are what would you guess is the biggest objection that I get when I say this idea? And I'll tell you there's a minor objection uh, and a major objection. What problem do you think people have with this idea? Objection. What strenuous objection? Um, I don't know. It sounded pretty reasonable. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Very good. Okay. So let me let me let me start off with the the weaker objection, and this is an objection that um, is raised by. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what the objection is. The, the, so the, the weaker objection, not the big one. The weaker. Oh, sorry. Okay. Oh, uh, yeah. Sorry. We're good. We're good. Yeah. yeah. So no. So I I just forgot which order I did this in. So the weaker objection is actually expressed by the Ramam in that para. Okay. And and I call this the Ramam's lamentation. Okay. So here's what he says. So he's he's talking about things that are impossible. So he says similarly the bringing into being of a corporeal thing out of no matter whatsoever, which we call yeshme ayin or uh, creation ex nihilo, right? Bringing something out of nothing, belongs according to us to the class of the possible and to the class of the impossible according to the philosophers, okay? And and Aristotle and Plato both hold, I believe, I, I know Plato holds this, I think Aristotle holds this also, Yishmael is logically impossible. Okay. Yes, they, they believe in perpetual, the world is, is has has always 
Right, but it's not just that they believe in that. It's that they believe that it is a logical impossibility to bring something out of nothing. Right. Okay. The philosophers, he says, the philosophers say similarly that to bring into being a square whose diagonal is equal to one of its sides or a corporeal angle encompassed by four plane right angles and other similar things belong all of them to the class of the impossible. Uh And some of those who are, okay, I don't know what that particular last example is. And some of those who are ignorant of mathematics and concerning these matters know only the words by themselves and do not conceive of their notion think that they are possible. This is like my students who think that a square circle is like a square with rounded edges. You know, they they think that a square circle is possible, but they just don't know what a square square is and a circle is. Right, so basically what what this argument would say is if you're gonna go with, you know, intrinsic logic being wrong, sorry, meaning you don't believe tradition if it goes against strict logic, then why is creation from nothing from something not within the realm okay. of strict That's logic? That's true, but it's actually a bigger problem than that. Okay, he goes on and he says, would that I knew, this is where he laments, would that I knew whether this gate is open and licit so that everyone can claim and assert with regard to any notion, whatever, that he conceives, this is possible, whereas someone else says, no, this is impossible because of the nature of the matter. Or is there something that shuts and blocks this gate so that a man can assert decisively that such and such a thing is impossible because of its nature? So what he's saying is he's saying, I wish there was a way, like he says, okay, (laughs) he's saying, if you say that something is is logically impossible, then God can't do it. But there can be debate on what is logically possible or impossible. Okay, and he's saying, I wish I knew a way to resolve that. And he goes on, he says, should this be verified and examined with the help of the imaginative faculty or with the intellect? Okay, so for example, there are certain things that are impossible to imagine, but possible to understand with your mind. So for example, um, a an asymptote, which is a line that a curve gets closer and closer and closer to infinitely, okay, but never actually touches, or let's say even a line in geometry, right, that goes on infinitely. Those things you cannot imagine, right, because that would require imagine, but you can conceive of them with your mind. Right. Okay. So are you supposed to make this determination with your mind or the, the imagination? And what he goes on, and what can differentiate between that which is imagined and that which is cognized by the intellect? Sometimes you don't even know if you're imagining something or if you're conceiving of it. For example, the famous, um, who was it? Uh, why am I blanking on the British, um, British philosopher, witty guy. See, it's, 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 it's uh, hold on, what's his name? <laughs> It'll come to me. It'll come to me. But the guy that um, was giving the lecture and uh, Bertrand Russell, Bertrand Russell was lecturing and and he's talking about like the earth being suspended in space and the woman, I I don't know if I've heard this is the version of, sorry, I heard the woman like raises her hand and says, you know, silly professor, that's not what holds, uh, the earth isn't held up in space. And he says, well, kind woman, what what do you hold that the earth is, uh, how, how do you hold that the earth is being held in space? She says, it's resting on the back of a turtle. And he says, well, what is the turtle resting on the back of? And she says, turtles all the way down you know so mm-hmm. the the joke is that like that's an absurd thing but is that really as absurd as you know we hold that god exists forever and you can't imagine a being that exists forever right and aristotle held that the universe exists forever and that's not an impossibility in fact the Ramam didn't hold that that was an impossibility he held that the torah disagrees with it so the question is like what is in the realm of the, the imagination and what's in the realm of the intellect okay he goes on for, for an individual sometimes disagrees with someone else or with himself with regard to a thing that is in his opinion possible so that he asserts that by its nature it is possible, whereas the objector says this assertion that it is possible is the work of the imagination and not due to consideration by the intellect. Is there accordingly something that permits differentiation between the imaginative faculty and the intellect? 
And is that thing something altogether outside both the intellect and the imagination? Or is it by the intellect itself that no one distinguishes between that which is cognized by the intellect and that which is imagined? All of these are points for investigation, which may lead very far. However, this is not the object of our chapter. Okay, this is why I did not want to teach the Ramam's parak here, because these are very weighty questions, and I had no recollection of this place, okay, uh, when I was, you know, uh, all I remember is, oh, yeah, the Ram says God can't do the impossible stuff, but these are, are much more philosophical, epistemological questions. So the question here is like this, and remember, this is the weaker question, okay? The question, the objection to the Albo is, how can we really know which is which? Albo, you're saying that if it's impossible for the intellect to conceive, then God can't do it. And if it's possible to conceive, then God can do it. Now, if it were unanimous, what was considered possible or impossible, then we'd all be in a happy situation. But the Raman himself, the king of logic in Judaism, is saying that we can't even agree on what is intrinsically impossible. Okay? That objection, I have no answer to. Okay? But here's the objection that your listeners will, will, will launch. Okay, and I'm actually going to quote from a book. I did not have the firsthand text for these two sources I'm going to quote. So I'm going to quote from, um, oh, sorry. First, I'm going to give a, a quote from, from a, uh, uh, I'll, I'll introduce this with a dialogue. Okay, um, so I don't, I'm not a physicist. I don't know quantum mechanics, but all I know is that in a Newtonian world, there's no such thing as randomness. Okay, for example, if I roll the dice, if I knew, so to us it's random, but that's just because we're lacking knowledge. If I knew the exact weight of the dice and the exact force with which I threw it and how it hit the, I'd be able to predict exactly what it would land on, okay? So quantum though, maintains that randomness is a feature of reality itself, not because of a lack of knowledge, but there's indeterminacy in reality itself, okay? So the famous uh, 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 exchange of blows between Einstein and Niels Bohr went something like this. That God doesn't play dice with the universe? Right. So Einstein did not hold by quantum, and he says, God does not play dice with the universe. And do you know Niels Bohr's response? I heard it once. What is it? Einstein, stop telling God what to do. <laughs> okay? Or who are you to tell God what to do? Okay? So so um, I, I did not have the actual sources, so I'm quoting from Mark Shapiro's book, The Limits of Orthodox Theology. Okay? So he starts off, and we're going to get a little um, Ramban in here also. He says, it is worth noting, however, that there have been Jewish thinkers who reject Maimonides' basic assumption and believe that God can do the logically impossible. They argue that this is only impossible from the human standpoint, and there is no reason to posit that, quote, and this is a quote from the Ramban in the Kisvei Ramban 2.494, according to what he's quoting, quote, because the human intellect cannot conceive the existence of something possessing simultaneously contradictory properties, such existence is necessarily impossible in reality. That's what the Albo holds, right? He says, if something is contradictory, it's impossible, right? So some people argue with that, okay? He says, against those, such as Maimonides, who argue that God cannot do the impossible, and in particular asserted that God can have no physical movement, the Tosavist Rav Moshe Taku, 13th century, wrote, they, they, like the Rambam, are issuing a decree to the creator as to how he must be. By so doing, they're degrading themselves. In other words, don't tell God what he can and can't do. Okay, that's the objection. Rav Nachman of Bratislav, who I also don't have uh, the, the source here, also argued that God can do the logically impossible and that to claim otherwise is to restrict God's freedom. One of his disciples reported, uh, quote, he mentions that it says in there, the philosopher's books, is it possible that a triangle can be a rectangle? Our master, Rav Nachman, said, I believe that God can make a rectangular triangle, for the ways of God are hidden from us. He is omnipotent, and no deed is beyond him. 
As Arthur Green put it in summarizing Rav Nachman's position, faith is to exist even in the face of logical absurdity. The tradition of Tertullian has here found its Jewish parallel. And Tertullian, do you know who Tertullian is? No. This Christian theologian who said, um, so he's quoted as saying something, and apparently that's not what he actually said. He's quoted as saying, um, I don't know if this is a correct pronunciation, credo quia absurdum est, I believe because it is absurd. And this is about, I think, like, you know, uh, Christian doctrine, like the Trinity. So it's, uh, Moshe Shapiro, uh, Mark Shapiro says, um, uh, that's not what he actually says. His actual words are, it is certain because it is impossible, or it is by all means to be believed because it is absurd. Okay, fine. So nitpicky de definition. Okay. Right. So the objection here is like this, and this is a strong objection. How can we limit God based on human logic? And that's exactly what we are doing. We're saying, if I can't conceive of it, God can't do it. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, you see the big problem? <laughs> yeah. And another way of people asking this is they'll say, God invented the laws of logic, right? So like, yeah, he, he made it so that you can't um, think of a square circle, but like, you know, God God was not limited by that. May, who, who are you to say that God can't do that? Just because you can't understand it. Okay. <laughs> Shall I answer it? Yes. Well, what do you want to think about I mean, it? Give me 30 seconds. Sure, sure. Uh, digest it and see if I can maybe... Yeah. And, and by the way, just to clarify, this first objection of how can we know which is which, I am treating that for, I don't have an answer to that, and the Ramam doesn't have an answer to that. So that's clearly yeah. above my pay grade. I'm not going to try to answer that. I do think that we can answer question two, and I think the Albo gives an answer. Right, but question one is not, doesn't really um, slug up anything. For no, it doesn't. But what it, it just does makes do it harder to navigate Exactly, through. yeah, that's yeah. Right. Yeah. Question, the objection two is, is actually throwing everything on its face exactly so it's, yeah. it's, it's more pertinent also yeah just give me give me sure. 10 20 seconds over here you could put an ad in the uh <laughs> this is a good time to check uh... out the rabbi shnewis.substack.com for a weekly article on uh you know on on the part and many other philosophical things <laughs> there you go keep plugging away you have do you yeah. have like five podcasts so you might yeah well... yeah the stoke Jew podcast uh comparing and crashing <laughs> contrasting stoicism with judaism Michelet podcast, the Roman Pius podcast, the Tequila podcast, the uh, which one am I forgetting? Mokshavalad podcast. Well, we could say, yeah. Um, okay, let's say I were to, let's say we were to say, okay, fine, God can do all these things that our logic can conceive, like make a square circle. Yeah, that still doesn't mean anything, though. Okay, good. In reality, all you're saying is essentially god can do things that don't compute to me okay right all. okay and good so good i can say that but you're not really saying anything okay good so i'm going to actually offer two answers the first one is stated outright by the albo himself the second one i'm inferring from the ramban and what you're saying is going to line up with the ramban okay so we're going to hold hold off on that till we get to the ramban let's do the albo's answer okay so this is in 325 which is, you know, two books later, and he recaps his distinction, because this is like a while later. He says, before I respond to his statements, okay, it's funny, because he's not talking about Rav Nachman, but I'm reading as though he's talking to Rav Nachman. Before I respond to his statements, I will make an introductory statement, uh, which no man of intelligence can doubt, uh, namely that anything that is the subject of belief must be conceivable by the mind, 
though it may be impossible according to the laws of nature. Such natural impossibilities as the splitting of the Red Sea, or Sea of Reeds, I guess, the turning of the rod into a serpent, and the other miracles mentioned in the Torah or in the prophets can be conceived by the mind. Hence, we can believe that God has the power to produce them. But a thing which can't, the mind cannot conceive, for example, that a thing should be and not be at the same time, or that a body should be in two places at the same time, or that one and the same number should be both odd and even, and so on, cannot be the subject of belief, nor is it proper to believe that God has the ability to do it. So that's just a recap of what he said. Okay, and by the way, one of my students pointed out that now that we know with quantum that apparently two things can be in, in different places at the same time, and that's an example of like how the Ramam said, just because you think it's logically impossible doesn't mean necessarily mean that it's impossible. Okay, fine. But now here's where he answers the question, the objection number two. For example, okay, we cannot attribute to God the ability to create another being completely like him or to make a square whose diagonal is equal to its side or to make now what has happened not to have happened. For since the mind cannot conceive it, God cannot do it as it is inherently impossible. Therefore, it cannot be the subject of belief, for belief in impossible things does not give perfection to the soul. Here's the line. If that were the case, meaning if belief in impossible things gave perfection to the soul, reason would have been given to man for no purpose, and man would have no superiority to animals, since the mind would not have a basis for believing anything. It's, there's no meaning. There's no exactly. meaning to there, there's no meaning in saying God can do something that's that's. It's worse than that. It's worse than saying there's no meaning in saying that God can create a square circle. There's no meaning in in, in terms of how we're supposed to um, have a relationship with Hashem. The and it's even worse than that. It's also okay. like accidental. Like reason is accidental. It's not even right. Yeah. What he's saying. So I'm gonna, I'm going to summarize the way that I, I'm conceiving of it, which is as follows: If belief in logical contradictions were valid. In other words, if you could validly believe in something that is logical con contradiction, then man would have been given reason for no purpose, and he would have no basis for believing anything. True would be equal to false. Okay, think of an example that we can um, that we can we can. Um, oh, oh, there's oh, I got to plug a. Um, oh, what book is it in? Do you, do you know the author Terry Chiang? No, I, I think it's pronounced that way. He wrote two collections of short stories. If you're into fiction that is thought-provoking, one is called Story Stories of Our Lives, and the other one is called. Oh, see, I told you my mind would start to slip after nine o'clock. Okay, but we're gonna we're gonna go we're gonna press on. He has um, he has a story which I can send you guys. Um, uh, where this mathematician ends up discovering, like through math, an e like an equation by which any number can equal any other number. And what it does is it basically makes her suicidal because it makes all of math meaningless and it makes her entire mind meaningless. And the, the, the plot of the story is that she's a math genius. And so all the other mathematicians think that like, no, there must be a way to solve this, but she sees that it's like, it's like meaningless, you know? So, so imagine in math, if, if all the point of all of the equations is to like, be able to like follow these rules of logic and, and and math and to get you know like like outcomes that are right and outcomes that are wrong but if every number could equal any other number you've just destroyed all of math so yeah, to it's not math if, anymore it's not math anymore so to if, if if you we reject things that are contradictory on the basis that if it's a contradiction it cannot be true and it cannot exist if things that are contradictory can be true so then on what basis are you choosing between this belief and that belief You've just annihilated all of knowledge, right? Okay. Oh, meaning I, I mean, if we're gonna go with this route, then you can throw out Judaism altogether. Yeah, you could throw out all of Judaism and all of science and all of math and all of everything. 
Yeah, yeah, everything becomes essentially nothing. Exactly. And there'd be no difference between believing something that makes sense and believing something that doesn't make sense, which, by the way, is why I started off with that premise, that everyone holds that we should believe things that are true. But if believing something that's false is no different than believing something that's true, or better yet, if I could believe that Hashem is God and that Baal is God, and that's a contradiction, you know, that was what, what Eliyahu Navi told the, the Jews that were in conflict. He says, if Hashem is God, worship him. If Baal is God, then what worship him. You know, how long are you going to sit on the fence? And I remember Rabbi Chait explained that to mean that, that you know, worshiping, the, the belief in Baal and the belief in Hashem are mutually exclusive, okay? So can you imagine if you went to, uh, okay, can you imagine if you, I think I wrote an article about this, if you went to an NCSY uh, Kirov organization of kids who were like, you know, on the fence about being religious, and you told them, Make up your mind. If the Torah is true, follow it. And if it's not true, then violate it. You know, you probably get fired really quickly, right? So why is Eliyahu Navi making this statement? Because what he's saying, he's not saying something like that. When it comes to tshuva, then, and, and you, you can take your time, you know, but when it comes to beliefs, you cannot believe in both Hashem and Baal. So believing in, a, trying to believe in both in a state of contradiction is worse than purely believing in Baal. If you just believe in Baal, at least you're being consistent and having a consistent belief based on like saying that I reject things that I believe are false and I reject things that are contradictions, that's on route to like true knowledge. But being being a post game day, even you know, fence sitting and believing in contradictory things, that you that's that's yeah. the furthest removal you can get from to, you can't you can't in in a contradiction, both things can't be true. Either both right. of them are false or one of them is correct. Exactly. Right. One of them is true. Right. Okay, so that's his answer, and we're going to come back and get further clarity by comparing it to the Ramban, okay? Let's move on to the last source, which is, well, sorry, before we move on to the last source, the thing that, to me, uh, the quote that best encapsulates this is one attributed to Galileo. He says, I do not feel obliged to believe that the same God who has endowed us with senses, reason, and intellect has intended us to forego their use, okay? That God gave us a Tzalem Elohim to be able to, uh, through logic and reason and rationality, to arrive at to be able to tell what things are true and what things are false. So if you're going to say that we have to get rid of that and, and ignore it, then why did God give it to us in the first place? That's why he says God would have given reason to man for no reason. Okay, so my summary, my takeaway here is Hashem can do anything that the human mind can conceive. If we believed he could do that which is intrinsically impossible, all knowledge would be rendered null and void. Okay? Okay, final point is a beautiful point, right? Beautiful. See, I, I hope I can get you to learn the uh, the Sefer Yikarim. Okay. I want to I want to show this podcast to my to my children when they're old enough. Seriously. Yeah, when they're old enough. Really, yeah. It's <laughs> really important. This is really yeah. really important. Okay. So let's go to the Ramban now. Um. So the Ramban, I'm going to quote from the end of the Vikuach, the disputation. So background for those who don't know, uh, I'm just quoting from Wikipedia, the disputation of Barcelona, uh, in July 20 to 24th. I didn't know we know the date. To the uh, one thousand, uh, one thousand, uh, sorry, twelve sixty-three was a formal ordered medieval debate between representatives of Christianity and Judaism regarding whether or not Jesus was the, was the Messiah. It was held in the royal palace of King James the First of Aragon in the presence of the king, his court, and many prominent ecclesiastical dignitaries and knights between Dominican Friar Paul, Pablo Cristiani, okay, or uh, um, Fray Paul, a convert from Judaism to Christianity. And Nachmanides, Ramban, a leading medieval scholar, Jewish scholar, philosopher, physician, Kabbalist, and biblical commentator. So uh, we, so what happened basically is like this dialogue took place, and then I think 
Pablo Cristiani and his henchmen started spreading rumors that he won the debate. So that forced the Ramban to write this down in an essay and say, no, this is what really happened. And that's the essay that we have. And there is, I believe on YouTube, a movie version of this yes. where the illustrious um, Christopher Lee, the actor who played Saruman, plays King James I of Aragon. Uh, yeah, so, it's free yeah. on YouTube. Rabbi Maruf actually sent it to oh, us. Okay, good, good. Yeah, I actually haven't watched all of it, but uh, there. Okay, so this is from the almost the very end. Okay, so the context is they're talking about the Trinity. Okay, and, the, and they go back and forth, you know, that the Trinity is that God is, you know, one and three, and that the three is one. So Ramban basically like tries to pin him down and say, are you saying that that there are three gods? You know, and Paul Christian says, no, I'm not saying there are three gods. And he's saying, okay, are you saying that, that there are, what are you saying? He's saying, is it like three people in a family? Is it like uh, one God, three persons? And he like basically like, like, tries to like like pin down what, what, what Friar Paul is saying uh, to get him to like just articulate his belief. And he's trying to like corner him into the contradiction. So this is at the very end. And I, I put this in, I, this is the only part I want to read in Hebrew. Okay. So Az Amad Frey Paul Ba'amar. Then Friar Paul arose and declared, Kihu mamin He believes in real oneness, in God's oneness. And nevertheless, there are three. Okay, so he believes in God's oneness and the Trinity. This is something very deep. That even the angels and the ministers on high don't understand. Now here's the epic scene. Okay, I the Ramban arose and said, It is clear, man cannot believe that which he does not know. If so, the angels cannot believe in the Trinity. And this is and then Friar Paul's friends silenced him. Okay, that's like the the meme with the Captain America being held back. Uh, you know, uh, and, you know. So the uh, so so that is the key phrase here in the Ramban. Man cannot believe that which he does not know. So the question is, why not? And we've danced around this point all night. Because how can you believe? How can conceptually it's impossible to believe in something if you don't know it? Okay, yeah, it's like a self-evident thing, right? Yeah. Exactly. yeah. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna support it with the the Rambam. Okay, and this is the uh, another Rambam that this Rambam everyone should learn. This is in the Mornibuchim um, Chelik Aleph Perik Nun, where he defines what we call emuna. He uses the uh, Arabic Judeo Arabic word itikad. Okay, so it's translated to Hebrew as emuna uh, or belief. Itikad or emuna is only possible after comprehension. It consists in the conviction that the notion apprehended by the mind has its existence outside of the mind in reality, exactly as it is conceived in the mind. So in other words, you have the thing in your head and imuna means that you're convinced that that thing exists in reality the same way it exists in your mind. Okay, my favorite example of this, which I'm gonna get up on my uh, blog on my phone uh, because I don't wanna end the, the screen share. Um, give me one second. I'm going to look at my Substack and search for this. Oh, you know, I'm, I've never done this on uh, on the phone before. How do I search on the phone? Give me one second. We'll, we'll do another plug. <laughs> Rabbishnewis.substack.com. Um, get your articles there uh, today. Okay, hold on a second. Mitzvah. So this article I wrote called The Mitzvah of Imuna. And I have my favorite uh, example of Imuna, not from... Um, not from uh, religion. Okay, so this is from the book Coming of Age in the Milky Way by Timothy Ferris, not to be confused with Tim Ferris. Uh, and there's an anecdote uh, which is going to illustrate Einstein's immuna in the theory of relativity. Okay, so here's what he says Einstein once astonished Ernst Strauss 
by saying of Max Planck, the father of quantum physics. So Einstein said, he was one of the finest people I've ever known and one of my best friends, but you know, he didn't really understand physics. When Strauss asked what he meant, Einstein replied, during the eclipse of 1919, Planck stayed up all night to see if it would confirm the bending of light by the gravitational field of the sun. If he had really understood the way general relativity explains the equivalence of inertial and gravitational mass, he would have gone to bed the way I did. So the the the, the hop here, the point is that that Einstein had emuna in the theory of relativity, which meant that he was so convinced based on knowledge that reality corresponded to what was going on in his mind that he didn't need to see it to believe it. But Max Planck understood it, but he needed the reinforcement from like seeing it, you know? So that's what Amuna is, is you have the thing in your mind and you, and you are convinced that the thing outside of your mind is uh, is in line with that. Okay? All right. Got it? Okay. Yeah. So the answer of why man can't believe that which he doesn't know is as follows. Belief pertains to the contents of the mind. If it doesn't register in the mind, it can't be believed. And here's an example. I know it just sounds like I just said what the Ramban just said. Here's an example. I can believe in unicorns and pink elephants because they can register in my mind. Okay, what is a unicorn? It's a horse with a horn with magic blood or whatever you want to say, okay? And what is a pink elephant? It's an elephant, which is pink. But I cannot believe in square circles or the Trinity because square circles can't register in the mind and the Trinity can't register in the mind. So in order to have belief in it, if, if, if Imuna is conviction that the thing in my mind is exists in reality outside of my mind and there's a correspondence, I can't have Imuna if the thing doesn't register in my mind, okay? Okay. Okay. So now just to clarify both, you have a question, Vincy, or? I have a question, but I don't know how to formulate it and I don't want to ramble. <laughs> okay. So let me, the, 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 I, I respect that decision. Uh, let me just do this um, uh, last point here, which is going back to the second objection from before, which is how can you limit God based on human logic? God invented logic. He transcends our understanding. Who are you to tell him what he can and can't do? So I think there are two answers. There's the Albo's answer and there's the Ramban's answer. The Albo's answer is the one that I think people will have a harder time accepting. I think people can accept the Ramban's answer if they if they um, uh, if they under, uh, can accept it if they understand it. Okay. So here's how if I put this words in the Albo's mouth, here's what he here's how he would respond to that question. Okay. God endowed human beings with intellect as our only tool for apprehending truth. If you equate sense with nonsense, rationality with irrationality, and logic with illogic then the mind and all knowledge is worthless, okay? So he's saying, I'm, I'm not limiting God. I know that it says in the Torah that God gave man an intellect, and I know that everything that God does is good and is perfect, and that the intellect is what allows us to apprehend truth. So if you're telling me that my mind can't apprehend truth, then you're saying that what God did is in vain, okay? But here's the Ramban's answer, okay? Ramban would say, this isn't about God's limitations, but about my limitations. I am a human being. I can only use the tools God gave me. I can't believe what my mind cannot know any more than I can perceive what my eye cannot see. So the way I would say this, just elaborate on this, is God gave us a mind. The mind works through laws of logic. We cannot not think according to rules of logic. It's hardwired into the mind, okay? And the only truths we can attain are truths that are in line with that. Okay. Now there are things that are above human understanding. When Moshe asked Hashem, "Hari ininas kavodecha, show me your essence," Hashem said, "Lo yirani haadam v'chai." Man cannot see me and live, which means that there's certain limitations on what man can know about God when we are operating through a physical medium. Okay. 
So to demand that man be able to know God's essence when he's physical is impossible. So to, for, to demand that man be able to know God violating the laws of logic is impossible. Just like it's impossible for the eye to see things that do not reflect wavelengths of light. Okay, for example, I can see a book because the light is bouncing off and going into my eye and my brain is translating those signals into, uh, into uh, images, right? But let's say an electron. Why can't I see an electron? Because electrons are so small that they don't reflect light. Okay, or my eye can't, I don't, I don't really know physics, whatever, whatever I'm saying. It's too small, I can't see it, right? Now, if you were to yell at me and say, how dare you limit God by saying that your eye can't see an electron? I'd say, I'm not limiting God. I'm saying I can only work with the tools that God gave me. My eye can only work in certain ways and can't work in other ways. And I can only see in ways that are in line with the way my eye works. So too, my mind can only work in certain ways in logic. And I can't accept contradictions. I can't think about square circles. So I can't believe anything about that. Now, if you want to say that God can do stuff or understand stuff that I can have zero knowledge of, fine, you can yeah. do that. Yeah, God can do a lot of stuff that I can't say. But here's the thing. We can't talk about it. We can't think about it. We can't believe it because the apparatus that God gave us does not lend itself to that. Right. It, it has no scope in our reality. It's just, right. it, it's nothingness. It's literally exactly. nothing. Right. So I think that's how I would answer this question. We are not limiting. We, we, it's true that the litmus test he gives us is if the mind can't conceive of it, then God can't do it. But what that means is that that we can only believe stuff that we can understand. And if the, it involves a contradiction, we cannot understand it. We can't comprehend it. Therefore, we cannot believe it. And you can say all you want that God can do it until you're, 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 you're blue in the face. But that's like the person who says God can make a square circle. God can make a square circle. You know, Rav Nachman can say God can make a triangle rectangle. But guess what, Rav Nachman? Triangle rectangles are just the same as saying blah, blah, blah. So if you want to, if you want to go around saying God can say blah, God can do blah, God can go blah, you can be happy doing that. But that's not actually gaining any perfection of the soul. And if you want to believe in your heart, God can't. If you're just sitting there believing God can do blah, that's what you're doing when you're saying God can create a square circle. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So the so that is the takeaway. The takeaway from Ramban is man cannot believe that which he doesn't know. And in order to believe in something, it must register in the mind. So that brings us to the end. And I actually decided to, I told you I was going to end this way, but I, I, I decided to actually not make a PowerPoint slide. The final question is, so what, who cares? This is for you to answer. What, what do you think emerges from this for you? Why do you think this is important for us to have gone through? Um, obviously, there's no one right answer. I'm just curious. Why do you think this is important to talk about and to know and to get straight? And actually, why, you know, I'll give you time to think while I review all these six just verbally, okay? So we had logic, which is that the questions about can God do the impossible, can God create a rock he can't lift, you know, they're often based on a false premise, a paradox, a non-starter, or a childish idea about omnipotence. So really think about the question. Takeaway two from the Rambam, God can't do, can't do anything which would undermine his nature because then it wouldn't be Hashem. And I challenge any religious person who thinks that they believe in God to actually tell me that they believe that God can replicate himself. And I'll tell you that when you say Shema Yisrael Hashem Echad, then you're worshiping the wrong God. Because the God that we worship cannot duplicate himself because it's Hashem Echad.
you know? So I think everyone should be able to agree that God cannot do at least one thing, which is to, to replicate himself. Okay. Um, well, I, I, I think it's, as I could speak as a Jew. Yeah. Uh, not just as a human being, but, you know, as someone who believes in the Torah, the, the first commandment to know God, you know, we have to have a basic understanding of what God is and also what he is not. Right. So, so parameters. The, 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 yeah, the parameters, because I think that what's happening today, and I'd say majority of people are probably projecting their own ideas of what God, God is based on what he ought to be. Right. And, and, and that is very dangerous because we, like you said, we can't attribute things to God that are not accurate. Right. So, that's so, actually a really sharp point because I think the, that's another reason why, um, going back to what we were saying, the psychological reason for, um, uh, for why these questions feel powerful is I think that, that, you know, like we said, these, these, these beliefs in God tend to emerge from unexamined ideas combined with childhood emotions. And when you try to shake that edifice, when you try to like, you know, uh, chip away at that, all the defenses come up because people want the God, people want the God that they created. They want like to create God in their image, you know? And, uh, and so like to say that, no, there's a God that, that, that operates based on, on like his own, you know, uh, <laughs> that, that, that we're going to show you based on, on, on logic you know, is not the way that you think uh, he, uh, that you thought he was growing up. That could be a traumatic thing, you know, and that's why you, you have to do it at the right age. You can't, you know, you can't play this to a, uh, for a six-year-old, you know, then they're going to be getting all messed up. But uh, yeah. yeah. Well, I think also, I mean, if you look at, for example, Christianity or Kabbalah, it kind of maps out. It gives you like a visual of like how things work and how God functions and all that. And, and that in itself is, is some one of the things that our podcast, obviously we're, we're constantly trying to, refine people's understanding of what God is because those are those are that comes from man um creating God in our image okay I, mean, I again I don't know anything about Kabbalah yeah, just it's a projection it's basically projection basically okay I, I don't know I, I don't know about that I'll have to I'll have to at some time assess that on my own um I'm not I'm not I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna follow the Meiri's advice which is that I'm going to uh I'm not gonna take your word for it I'm gonna wait till I can determine it on my own and understand each step <laughs> So um, fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so just to continue our review before we we answer the the, the takeaways more. So Meiri said that you should be a thinker and analyze each step on your own, um, to determine whether it's possible or impossible in religion and science. Be consistent. Sadiqon said we don't gain anything by attributing to God absurdities, but you can say that God can do anything because as long as it's a thing, then God can do it. If it's a non-thing, He can't do it. But that's not a limitation on God. Sefer Ikarim was the most subtle point, which is that God can, Hashem can do anything that the human mind can conceive. But if we believe he could do that, which is intrinsically impossible, all knowledge would be rendered null and void. And then the Ramban says, man cannot believe that which he does not know. In order to believe something, it must register in the mind. So yeah, any other takeaways or who cares? Answers? I think, I think that um, at least, I mean, there's a lot of things to say, but I think the main thing I think that is coming that comes out of all this is that our relationship with Hashem has to be predicated on our minds and on logic. Right. Because if we predicate our relationship with God on our emotions, that does not mean, I don't mean to say that one shouldn't have emotional stimulation from, 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 from uh, the concept of God and then, and, you know, having a relationship with Hashem, I'm not taking that away, but I'm saying when the foundation 
of our relationship with God is not built on the mind, we're basically opening the doors to a distorted relationship. Right, exactly. And uh, and just to just to, to uh, uh, reinforce that, I mean, that's why it's, I think it's in Dibre Hayamim somewhere uh, when it's recording Shlomo's uh, parting words to, sorry, uh, David's parting words to Shlomo. Da eloke avicha avdehu. Know the God of your father and serve him. That it has to first come knowledge of God and then service of God. And then with the emotions also, I mean, look, again, I'm also, you know, I'm, I'm very pro-emotion, especially emotions about right. God, so but I, I so are you. So I, I'm, just, I'm just echoing your point. Um, you know, I give a Tehillim shear every Wednesday night, and the whole idea is that you lead with your mind and understand who God is according to limitations of human knowledge and who he's not and what he does, and then your emotions follow and get in line with that, exactly. you know, not the other way around, right? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Um. I'm going to add my own takeaway, which is why I taught this in high school. Okay. And this is a whole other thing, um, which one of your other podcast guests talked about. So the Rambam brings this in, in the Mor Nebuchim 315. Okay. What is he talking about there? Those are the problem leading up to talking about EO and Sadiq Baralo and Russia Batovlo. Okay. Why good things happen to bad people and vice versa. So I think, and I'm, I'm not going to get into this. I'm just going to allude to this and Hamevin Yavin, but that part of understanding the answer to the question of why good things happen to bad people and vice versa has to boils down to realizing that God created the best system that is possible in the physical world. But because it's a physical system, it has limitations. Okay. That does not mean God is limited, but physical things are limited. Okay. And to say that God can create something that's physical and has no limitations or flaws, that's a contradiction in terms. Okay. And the Raman says that explicitly in, uh, in, in, in the morning book in those chapters there. Um, so I think that there is a lot of wishful thinking that people have when they think about the evils in the world and they just wish that it could be different. And the analogy that I give is like, like I, I, you know, I was so happy when I heard David Gutman, who everyone should read his essay on divine providence, because I still, I say that that essay, uh, and I say this, like, <laughs> I don't know if I'm serious about this, but it definitely feels like it. It feels like that essay was written with Ruach HaKodesh. I don't know what Ruach HaKodesh is, but in the sense that every time I read it, it levels up my understanding of Hashgacha, and all he's doing is just rearranging the Ramams and explaining them, you know, mm-hmm. but, but, He's he said in, in in the podcast episode um, an example that I also use. He says that you know people um, rightfully so uh, hate uh, cancer and bemoan cancer, and they think, well, why can't there just why does there have to be cancer in the world? You know, and he said that well, cancer has to do, and again, I'm not a doctor, and I don't know how cancer works in detail, but cancer is caused by cell mutations that go awry. Let's put it that way, right? that cell mutations that mutate in ways that are not good. But here's the thing, is if cells didn't mutate, you would get no evolution, okay? And you get no differences. And the same processes which go into, into allowing creatures to evolve and, and to overcome weaknesses and all this other stuff, those same processes result in, in, in other consequences as well that are not desirable, okay? The same tectonic shifts in the Earth's plate that result in the formation of, of, of mountains and geography also result in earthquakes. So I think the uneducated person wants to say, well, why can't God just make it so that like the earth does what it does and no one dies in earthquakes? Or why can't God just make the human body that, you know, that it has uh, cells and there's no cancer, you know? 
The Rambam says, if you want to be a physical creature, but you also want to have skin that is impervious to, to harm and all this other stuff, you're wishing for the impossible. You know, so so yeah. I, the idea is that only when you truly internalize this idea that you can't believe that God can do the impossible, will you be able to succeed in answering the question of why bad things happen to good people? And that's a step that people are not willing to take or don't know that they can take. So I, I, that's why I teach this. And 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 it's it takes a lot of, you know, this is a much larger context than we had in the share tonight. But I think that this is a critical thing. You will not be able to, to understand or accept God's justice unless you realize that there are things that are impossible. And by the way, just, just to go back to Rep. David Gutman. Yeah. Uh, he, you know, I got a lot of, we got a lot of good feedback from that episode and yeah. we're also going to be interviewing his son soon, God willing. So oh, cool. Okay, good. Fun. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah. I mean, I, I actually want to ask one last question sure. um, and maybe it's not so, maybe it is relevant, not relevant, but there is this idea, you know, that people have today that God is one with the world, right? The right. world is God and God is the world. Right. And, and, you know, he's not only imminent, but he's also transcendent and so on. And pantheism. Pantheism. So that, what, what about that argument from a logical perspective? Is there, is it, are there, what are the flaws in that from a logical perspective, from, from the Jewish perspective, classical Jewish perspective, what yeah. is the problem with believing that? Uh, that would be a whole nother shear. Maybe, we can do that. We can do that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if yeah. you're willing. Or, I don't know if you're willing to, but uh, you know, <laughs> I'd have to educate myself more on that. I think there are probably more qualified people on that one. That one didn't come up so much in high school. Yeah, we're I, did actually, give, I did give you share once on 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 hamakom, and a hamakom is not panentheism. Uh, maybe we can revisit that topic at some time. Sure. Well, but Shreewife, I have to say to you, yeah, um, your presentation, your thoroughness, your leaving no stone unturned, your ability to um, formulate things. Uh, it was really incredible. Okay, really thank good. you for the opportunity. I, I learned so much right now. This was, okay, this was like this was like four years of college condensing. <laughs> Look, you know, I, I said that there are a lot of things that I'm not. I am a high school teacher, and when you're a high school teacher, you really have to break it down into very clear steps. You know, I learned that from my Rebbe Rebbe Moskowitz, but like that, it, it has to be clear, and you have to like spell everything out. And so, if that's if that if that worked, then that, then then that's great. And I, I just want to add just as at the end, that if any of your listeners have questions, feel free to email me at rabbishnevoice.gmail.com. Okay, you can look at the spelling. Uh, and uh, I always, <laughs> it's funny, every time I would teach high school, the first assignment in every class would be for them to email me. And there will always be students who spell Schneeweiss wrong. Okay, S-C-H-N-E-E-W-E-I-S-S. And like, and they'll swear that they spelled it right. But I, I point it and, and it's wrong. And you know, okay, it can't both have, Three S's and two S's at the same time. That's a contradiction. Okay. Even God can't explain it. Okay. Um, and I also want to point out, um, and you said you, know, you said I can plug stuff. So I'm just gonna plug all of my stuff here. Oh yeah. Okay. And uh yeah, you can find these links on any of my content at the bottom, but my substack is where I write stuff, rabbishnamus.substack.com. Right now I'm only doing uh, a one-page article every Friday, usually on the Parsha, but during the summer, I write more. And this coming year, I hope to write a lot more. Uh, I have my Patreon, uh, which is how I uh, eat food and have an apartment. Patreon.com slash My YouTube channel is where I post all the videos of the stream, I guess, except this one. Although maybe you we can find some way to get this. So when you post it on your channel, I can also post it on my channel. I, I don't know if that's politically correct or, or, or whatever. Yeah, but um uh, uh, youtube.com slash rabbi schneeweiss all the, the shirim are, are recorded on zoom there 
Um, I am dabbling in Instagram. I, if this is coming out in a month and hopefully by that time I'll be much better at it. Uh, but I'm experimenting with Instagram. You're, you're actually way better than I thought you'd be at this point. So. Okay, good. All right. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying and I'm, I'm not really, uh, I, I, I tend to devote much more time to it in the summer. So we'll do that. I have five podcasts. The Stoic Jew podcast is where we explore the relationship between Judaism and Stoicism. That's the only podcast that's a true podcast where I make episodes specifically for that. All the other podcasts are just where I upload recordings of my shirim. Machshava Lab is all of my Jewish philosophy, all my chumash, all of my miscellaneous stuff, my Pirkei Avos. Mishle podcast is where I upload all my Mishle shirim. There's over 420 Mishle shirim and counting. Ramam Bikius podcast is where I have a daily, uh, four times a week Ramam uh, Bikius shir, which is really more Bikiun. I have a tefillah podcast where I, I put all my tefillah shirim and all of my tehillim shirim. My old blog, which has over 400 articles is kolhasridum.blogspot.com. I'm migrating that to the Substack, but it takes a long time. And then for all of my content, I have a WhatsApp group that is a one-way WhatsApp group. So you're not gonna have discussion there. It's just whenever I post um, uh, uh, podcasts, videos, articles, or, or sheer announcements that are open for everyone, I'll post it in the WhatsApp group. So that's what I have right now. And that's where you can find all my stuff. If anyone, if anyone has my number who's listening, you know, message me and I'll, I'll give you access to his okay. WhatsApp. And, yeah, thank you. Uh, and uh, first of all, you just contradicted your, your whole thing because you said a person, you said a, something can't be in multiple places at once. But just judging by the list that you just showed me, you must be in a million places at once. Yeah, I know. It's <laughs> <laughs> this is incredible. I mean, yeah, this is one of those things that's impossible. Uh, that's not impossible. It's improbable. But uh, improbable. yeah, it's improbable. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah and, and and I actually was came to my mind as I said um, before the the question of panentheism. But we're gonna have Rabbi Maruf, God willing on oh, dedicate to that and okay we good he's gonna to he's have... he's actually like knowledgeable in in, in like the the, the nitty-gritties of philosophy you know yeah, so yeah. like he can i'm sure he's gonna see justice and 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 you know one day our dream is to have you rabbi maruf and rabbi yoni Sachs together oh that would be wonderful just great as a reunion it'd be wonderful but it'd be great to yeah. yeah yeah great so thank you so much this was beyond what i even expected this is okay like... i'm i'm so happy that it worked out We're... and uh really thank you and yeah um, I see the way you spend your time, you know, you, you, you're living the most fulfilling type of life, spreading knowledge, teaching. Uh, it's just, you know, uh, you make going. me want to go, go back to high school right now. <laughs> no, seriously, nope. keep going, keep doing, keep inspiring okay. people, keep giving knowledge to people. Yeah. Um, it's appreciated and uh, we'll be following you. Okay, great. Yep. I right, thank you again for the opportunity and uh, I'm, I'm thankful to Hashem for, uh, for all these opportunities. Uh, you know, more Torah, the better. Amen. Yep. Amen. All okay. Right. Fantastic. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you. Right, take care. Bye. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning into the Judaism Demystified podcast. We really appreciate all your support and your feedback. If you want to help us grow the podcast, keep spreading the word, share it with your friends, family, or whoever you think would be interested. We also opened a Patreon. So you can become a patron, contribute any small amount you'd like, which would really help us grow the show. Um, our Patreon is www.patreon.com Judaism. Pretty easy to remember. Thank you again, and we hope to keep putting out great shows for you guys.